Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, January 12, 843-661-0937, our number. Good morning. Back in the saddle, no shot, Josh. Good morning. You good now? I'm feeling much better. Okay, good deal. Good deal. We were concerned about you yesterday. Good morning, Royal Rev. Good morning. Of radio. Um, another day, another all-time great coach hangs it up. I don't know if this was under his terms as much as it was a mutual agreement between the New England Patriots, Robert Kraft, and Bill Belichick. Um, two days ago, Nick Saban calls it quits. Yesterday, Bill Belichick calls it quits. Um, it, it's kind of interesting. I'm a college football junkie. I mean, really and truly, I wish my team were better, but they ain't. It's just the nature of, um, of being a Gamecock fan. So I've been a longtime fan of a very mediocre program in a sport that I just am intensely passionate about. Having said that, the best football weekend in the world is this weekend. And, it, and, and the reason it is a playoff system, there will be more than likely an upset, whether it will be a big deal. We don't, we don't ship everybody down to Hard Rock Stadium in Miami where it's 78 degrees and sunny. I mean, you're going to have games in Buffalo, New York, and Kansas City, Missouri, and it'll be zero degree with a windshield 30. I mean, I read this morning they think two games, not one, two games could break the all-time temperature record. Now, the Dallas Cowboys won the lottery. Ah, they didn't win the lottery. They won enough games to not have to go to Green Bay this weekend. The Packers will travel to to the Cowboys, and I'll ask you this, Rev. You're a Gamecock fan, mm-hmm. probably not as I mean, obviously not as long time as I am, right? But but you've bought in. Sure. I mean, you're a season ticket holder. You love going to the games. You like SEC football. Yep. You're proud to be a, an affiliate. Yep. You know, a sponsor or a station in the broadcasting family. Um, but but there's no college game that has the intrigue of, and I'm talking about nationally, of a Packer Cowboy playoff game in January. Agree. But it's Have just, to agree. You know, I'm thinking about, okay, I'm cooking some steaks. I got my buddy who got me some breaded oysters. I'm too lazy to bread them myself. They come pre-breaded. Okay. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. They come pre-breaded. <laughs> um, you just drop them in the fryer. Little tartar sauce and cocktail sauce. Yes, and off sir. to the races we go. But, no, I mean, I, I'm a much bigger college football <laughs> fan than I am an NFL fan. But this weekend is the best weekend in all of football, just, college, or pro. I'm just thinking about you not being the type to, I'm not breading my own oysters. Okay, then, then, here's the story. You ready? <laughs> okay, I want to hear. I, knew I have a passive interest in a restaurant. I mean, you know that. Mm-hmm. I have a passive interest. One of my best friends in life owns uh, restaurants and knows what he's doing. He's been highly successful in the restaurant business. So when I need something, I ask him, hey, what are my options here? Um, here's the deal. You ready? I understand that there's... <sighs> A, a certain story that goes along with getting in your car, driving McClellanville, and picking up some shrimp off the dock. But I get that. I do. I understand that. Um, they're fresh off the boat. I mean, I actually saw the guys with the um, with the uh, with the boots on, you know, with the wheelbarrows, and they're unloading the shrimp off the boat. I know those shrimp are fresh out of the ocean. They are. I mean, there's no doubt they are. But I'm convinced now that some of these food suppliers have so many connections to the same people. Um, they don't drive to McClellanville, but they have a truck go to McClellanville probably the day before you got there. And and they have these processes. And what I've learned in my life as a passive uh, owner of a restaurant, very passive, and, and I'm not majority owner, I'm not managing partner by any stretch, 
of the imagination, but but I've learned that if you want the cheap food, they've got the cheap food. And I'm talking about these wholesalers. If you want the good food, they've got the good food. Um, some of these, uh, I don't want to call names. I'll get in trouble here. But some of these big food providers and, you know, uh, that, that sell to restaurants, yep. they have contracts with some of the most prestigious cattle growers in America. I mean, you know, Wagyu beef and Kobe beef and some of the uh, freshest seafood in the world. I mean, these companies have contracts. Here's the deal. You ready? They have a price for the slot bucket model. Uh, and I'm talking about drive-through food. I mean, if you want cheap food, they've got they've got a lot of cheap food. But if you want to get real good food, you can certainly get it uh, from some of those places. It comes in a box, and you say, "I don't want food in a box. I want it in a cooler. I want I want fresh seafood. I don't want fresh. I don't want seafood out of a box." If I took these oysters that I'm getting pre-breaded and and fried them for you, Rev, if I don't goof it up, and I'm very capable of goofing it up, but if I don't goof it up, you couldn't tell the difference. And those oysters and the one that just came off the dock in, in McClellanville. Mm-hmm. I saw the guys with the galoshes, you know, as they unloaded <laughs> uh, the oysters and shrimp. And I'm just, um, as I get older, I look for simple. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's just a oh, lot yeah. simpler um, to do it that way. Eight, four, three, six. And Josh, you're better. I am, yes. Good deal, good deal, good deal. You have any idea what was wrong? Um, I think I, I've been doing this shake diet, and I think I got a bad what one. What do you mean shake a diet? Uh all protein shake diet. No other animal protein, but all of your protein comes via whey or soy protein. I mean, a powder. Uh, you so gotta I, have some animal protein, my friend. You gotta have some. Don't it's buy into that. Non, don't buy into that liberal vegetarian nonsense. You need some animal protein. <laughs> I agree. If this you want to get big and strong, you gotta have some animal protein. This is not about getting big and strong. It's about getting skinny <laughs> for now. The strong will worry about okay, later. Fair enough. Fair enough. What is the opposite of strong? Weak. Okay. What is the opposite of big? Tiny. Okay. Okay. Tiny and weak. That's what Josh wants to be. <laughs> Josh has a burning desire that, to be tiny and weak. That's the goal right now. Good apparently. job, Josh. Anyway, we're no glad wonder, you're feeling when no you put it out of the way. weather. <laughs> that the guy sets out every day to be tiny and weak. <laughs> if that's your goal. <laughs> I'm just trying to get into ketosis to shed weight like Fair five enough. pounds I, a week. I get it. Um, I'll give you some some other routines that I think would better would better add serve. a little exercise in there. Yeah. Maybe. Josh is a good exerciser. Yeah. But he is. He, I, mean, I know he goes pretty regularly. Goes um eight four three six six one. Anyway, I interrupted the talk about the NFL playoffs. We're talking about and I will acknowledge, although I'm I'm definitely I certainly don't follow the NFL like I used to. I kinda got tuned out a few years ago. I won't go there, but I think a lot of people can relate to why. Um, and I just never got back into it. But I acknowledge that the the players in the NFL are already elite. If you're playing in the NFL, you're already elite. And now we're to the best teams of those elite players, and that's why it's so good. And it, they, they don't try to be amateurs and professionals. I mean, I think college for a long time has tried to have it both ways. We're amateur athletics. Mm, you got a billion-dollar TV deal. Your head football coach is making $10 million. I don't know what that says of amateurism. Um, and it's kind of, um, this is an interesting debate. And I've talked to some of my football bozos, as the bad boy likes to call us, recently. Um, I love these hypothetical arguments because there is no right answer. Um, we've debated on some of my text threads with my Gamecock bozos. We've debated, would you rather be coach in the NFL or a coach in college? I mean, the pay's about, I mean, there's a little bit higher I mean, on average, the NFL coach makes a little bit more, not a lot more, but some of these responsibilities now, I mean, obviously recruiting 
is endless. I mean, it never sleeps. You got to go convince this 18-year-old five-star quarterback to be um, your the, the guy that you build your program around. Um, but you've got to do it. I mean, I understand you've got assistant coaches. you got an AD. Uh, I would imagine you got a director of football operations in a minor sort of capacity. But then you go to the NFL, and you've got a general manager, a director of player personnel, a talent evaluator, a, a cadre. you got owners. I mean, you got war rooms. you got all these, these other things. So I think there was a fair debate. Do I want to manage – um, what's the NFL roster? 55. Do I want to manage 55 millionaires? All have bigger egos than the next. Or do I want to coach a bunch of kids and mold them into young men and champions? Nick Saban model. Do I want to get a young person to buy into the process of making him the best he can? But that's rewarding and gratifying. We win championships together. But all of a sudden that five-star kid says, coach, I want to come to Alabama, but Texas is offering me a better NIL deal. You've kind of, I mean, you've become... kind of a professional football coach in the weirdest way imaginable. But right now, other than teams that are aggressively pursuing success in the NIL era, that would not include my beloved Gamecocks. Let me say that again. Teams that are aggressively pursuing an advantage in the NIL era, and I mean teams that have adopted legislation that enhances their NIL opportunities. They've leaned on their state general assembly. I'm going to get with um, these guys here because I know I know because I got insiders. You ready? I know there's a bill in our state house that Clemson and South Carolina have been intimately involved in that will affect some changes to NIL. I just don't want it too university oriented. <laughs> I want it to be more collective oriented. But but the the coaches, let's take Kirby Smart as an example. There's a rumor out that the Atlanta Falcons owner, Arthur Blank, would like to sit down with Kirby Smart. I mean, Kirby's got one decision to make. I'm at the University of Georgia. We are probably, I mean, they didn't win it this year. Michigan did. But we're probably the premier football program in all of college football. But I've got a chance to go to the NFL. I don't want to go to the NFL and deal with all those prima donnas. You know, you talked about the best of the best. I mean, everybody's a millionaire. Everybody drives a Lambo. Everybody goes on vacation. I don't want to deal with all that. But you kind of are now, Kirby. I mean, you're dealing with college athletes getting millions of dollars. The only, the, 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 the biggest advantage I see at the college or, or the pro level, over the college level, the pro level already has this built-in operation. I mean, there's an organization in place. You don't have to go out and cut the deals and, and scout the players. I mean, in the old days of college football coaching, you just go out recruit somebody. And now you've got to bring the collective to the table. You've got to bring the organizational structure to the table. How much money can you get from Bojangles or McDonald's or a car dealer or whatever? I mean, it's just real, real complicated. So if I'm at an if I'm at a college football program and I get an inquiry from the NFL, I may not previously had considered it, but all of a sudden I'm kind of doing the same job anyway. I just don't have the support staff. Now, now Florida is building an NFL franchise model. But I mean, there's a news that Monday or Tuesday. I've argued this for how long? I mean, I've argued this on the Bad Boys Radio Show back in the day of us getting off the air at nine. I'd go spend an hour with um with the bad boy and um, the press box. And I would argue that we need to build. I mean, college football is becoming more like pro football. Somebody's going to build a kind of a front office in the NFL model. Well, here comes NIL and paying players and all that. And Florida, Missouri, and Mississippi are taking great advantages of this um, arrangement 
by being ahead of the curve. Okay. They figure that's the path to success. Well, and, and as usual, we'll wait, we'll wait and see what works and what doesn't. And, and we'll, we'll kind of bring up the rear. By the way, uh, Bad Boy, who does, we talked about him this morning, he listens to the show. He does, you know, we are his show prep for he his show. He loves local radio, man. Yeah. He loves local radio. It's, it's, we're his but, show prep. For his mean, show. I've been it around him. Seven. He and you. Well, is that grammatically? Who cares? <laughs> um, the two of you. The two of you are as passionate about local radio as anybody I know. And, and, I, and I applaud you for that. I mean, it's in your blood. It's in his blood. Yep. Uh, he's in the sports. You're into, I guess, programming and music and whatnot. But I don't know two people. That, I never knew anybody before I backed into this show business. I never knew anybody like the two of you. But both of you share that in common. I mean, you guys are passionate about local radio. And he wants to make sure you get the reference right. It's football-headed bozos. Football-headed bozos. Yeah. I'll add, I am a, a, a hopeless gamecock football-headed <laughs> bozo. And being the football-headed bozo I am, I've got me some breaded oysters on the way. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I'm watching some NFL football. And good. I'm going to watch a lot of extremely talented millionaire athletes freeze their ass off in major metropolitan areas all across the Fruited Plains. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. We're talking about NFL. We're talking about money. We're talking about college football. We're talking about money. Money's the answer now. What's the question? Don't follow the money some of the time, most of the time, but rather all of the time. I've got some um, some news. You ready? Mm-hmm. From the time our nation was founded until January 1969, we ran up a debt that totaled $354 billion. Once again, the Hamiltonian, Jeffersonian, the Civil War, um, the, uh, I mean, just imagine everything our nation endured from its beginning in 1776 until 1969. That would have been what reefer madness and Woodstock and, you know, the, um, the, 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 the crazy sixties, the counterculturalists of the 1960s. But I went back and looked and in the, in the aggregate, we had $354 billion of debt. I mean, the deficit ebbed and flowed. I mean, there were years uh, during the war, during the Second World War, our, our involvement in the World, World War. I mean, it was expensive, and we had to borrow money, and we figured out a way to pay a majority of that back. But over the years, from the beginning of our nation to 1969, actually, January 1969, um, total debt, $354 billion. You ready? I mean, we're okay. Nothing to worry about here. From October to December 2023. Let me say that again. From the beginning of our nation to January 1969, we went into debt $354 billion. In the most recent quarter, our federal government spent $510 billion that it didn't have. Wow. I mean, imagine that, guys. I mean, that's where we are, October, December. I mean, that would be a business. I mean, our fiscal year is different at the government level, but I'm talking about, I mean, I'm a business guy. And I look at first quarter, second quarter, quarter over quarter, month over month, um, year to year. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to look at, evaluate where you are, you know, in your in your bottom line and, you know, your analysis of where your, your business is. I understand the government's not a business. I'm not trying to argue that it is a business. But October to December 2023, we spent $510 billion. I mean, that'd be bad enough in itself. We spent $510 billion, and then you add, that's a comma. That's not a period. We spent $510 billion, comma, that we didn't have. Joe Biden in three years. You ready, Williams? 
because we talk about all these jobs he's created. Well, tax receipts are down. There's a pretty significant decline that we're beginning to see with tax receipts um, collections, and that's COVID money. I mean, we were hysterical because we had some good economic numbers, but all that was make-believe. That's phony. That's hocus-pocus. Nobody bought that. I mean, anybody with reason didn't buy that. Some of the nonsense liberals who believe in modern monetary theory and debts don't matter and fiat currencies, the kind of in vogue, and that's the way worlds do it now. You know, people want things. you got to buy them things. Forget them going to work. Just crank the, the presses up. Originally now, digitally transfer the money from wherever to wherever. Um, but Joe Biden has run up a debt of $6 trillion in three years. He's averaging $2 trillion of deficit every single year. I mean, he's added that much to our deficit, $6 trillion in three years. And here's here's the kicker. We're about to head off into Jamie Dimon yesterday said, I mean, there's this terminology in economics called Goldilocks. I mean, this soft landing. And the Fed says, I mean, we got in things for the position, soft landing. Uh, Jerome Powell, I'm not sure, but I think we're going to Janet Yellen. Whatever Yellen says, if Yellen says buy Exxon, go short on oil. If Yellen <laughs> says buy Tesla, the EVs will fall off a cliff. Whatever Janet Yellen says, but I mean, it doesn't matter because she's just the, the Treasury Secretary. So who pays attention to somebody with that little influence in our economy? Um, Fed chair has been a little more open-minded. I mean, Jerome Powell's been a little more um, intentionally misleading. I don't know. I mean, Powell basically, it takes him 30 minutes, but in that 30-minute dissertation, Jerome Powell basically says, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if we're going to have a soft landing. I don't know if we're done raising rates. I don't know if we're going to begin. Uh, di- now, they're already baking in. I think they're counting on a, a couple of rate drops in the first half of the year. But Jamie Dimon said yesterday that he's still genuinely concerned from the J.P. Morgan perspective. And here's the way Diamond argued. It's so interesting to me. It probably what makes him so good. When he has these analysts, he asked the analyst to give him kind of a broad range of potential outcomes. From what I've read and the little bit I know about Wall Street, they seem to be a little more bullish than reality is. And Diamond actually introduces the bearish scenarios more frequently and more open-minded than some of the other uh, banks and some of the other financial institutions do. I don't know if you saw this or not, but J.P. Morgan, well, you probably didn't because you don't do what I do for a living. J.P. Morgan's chief investment strategist is beginning to model a market without Joe Biden as the Democrat nominee. I mean, these guys take everything into account. I mean, what if Biden is the president? In other words, if we are heavily financed, I mean, if we're financing business in renewable energy, I mean, I want to know how much exposure we have if Trump wins, because Trump's not going to be as giving to new renewable energy. There's not going to be an abundance of government programs funded by taxpayers. So when J.P. Morgan starts modeling for the future, I mean, it's they don't just grab a handful of you-know-what and throw it against the wall and say, well, that stuck and that didn't. No, they do um, some pretty in-depth modeling, and the J.P. Morgan chief investment strategist is beginning to model an economy without Biden as the Democrat nominee. And they're actually modeling, what if Michelle Obama's the president? What if uh, Gavin Newsom is the president? What are the What is the likelihood that he does X, Y, or Z? And what sort of impact or effect does that have on, on the economy? But Diamond said yesterday that some things happen. Here's his words. You ready? I may try to find this. 
some things happen. Because remember, he said he thought that we would begin to see economic deterioration. His number, his name, or his terminology, not mine, in September or October of 2023. Yesterday, he said, I'll stick with that concept. My timing was off. And he explained some things that happened that I don't have any idea what he's saying when he's saying this, but it's kind of inside baseball. I mean, I can I can get in the dugout, but I certainly can't get in that room where they talk the the most inside of inside of baseball. But but Jamie Dimon is is concerned about 2024 because Jamie Dimon believes, as I do, that the majority of economic growth has been government induced. I mean, it's all government. It's nothing but the government. There are some models out there, guys, and we touched on this over the years. There's some models out there that say since 2008, I mean, that's 16 years now, I'm really 15, going on 16. Since 2008, when we normalized quantitative easing, when we basically said, okay, central banks, you got to step in. I mean, we, we got a mess on our hands, and if we don't do something, we're all going to go off in the financial abyss together. Some economist, uh, you don't hear from them because CNBC doesn't let these folks on. And, you know, the mainstream media said, no, 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 can't talk about that. No, that's that's indicting government and its spending habits. But but a lot of um, economists, shall I say, off the beaten path, um, they believe that every, every measure of economic growth has been attributed to government spending. There's been no real economic growth. I mean, every, I mean, in, in other words, if, uh, and if you think about it, Rev, this is where I get real concerned. Let, let, let's, for argument's sake, say that somebody at some point in time has to deal with the debt. I mean, let, let, eventually, that's going to happen. Everybody knows that. Nobody knows when. Nobody knows the number. And nobody knows what the other side looks like. Well, I say nobody. I mean, very few people have a genuine understanding of what the other side looks like when the government says, we got to really start considering how to control our debt. I mean, we've, we, we've spent, we, we spent like drunken sailors. We can't do that anymore. There's not a demand for our currency. We're not the preeminent superpower, whatever, whenever. There's going to be a moment in, maybe not in my life, but in Josh's life, there will be a moment that somebody at the federal level makes a very serious decision about how to deal with our debt. And as part of that, there's going to be cuts to Medicare. There's going to be cuts to Social Security. So let's say the average Social Security recipient is getting, let's just make up $2,500 a month. I mean, I don't know what the number is, but let's say the average Social Security recipient is getting $2,500 a month. There are 80 million people getting an average of $2,500 a month, and they get a 30% haircut. Do you not believe the economy shakes at its core when 80 million people have 30% less money? I mean, what happens to grocery stores? What happens to convenience stores? What happens to auto dealers? What, I mean, just imagine that much liquidity that, that, that we don't have. I mean, we don't have the money. I mean, we're not taking money out of the bank to give these Social Security recipients and Medicare. What happens to the health care industry when somebody at the federal level says we're cutting Medicare funding by 25%? I mean, what happens to a knee replacement or shoulder surgery or cataract surgery? I mean, there's going to be just an unbelievable market correction when that happens. And I don't know how we're not allowing that debate to be in the mainstream. It's just bizarre to me. Instead, in the last three years, we've run up six more trillion. And I think we've all agreed a trillion is kind of a supernatural number. Nobody can really comprehend how much that is. Well, if a trillion is a supernatural number, 
We spent six supernatural numbers that we don't have in three years and one half of a supernatural number in three months. Nothing to see here. Goldilocks and soft landings and everything will be okay. Well, it will until it won't. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Josh, this greases the word. That's this right. Morning. Josh That's is great. endearing himself to us older guys here. <laughs> He's accepted the demographic that, that he um, kind of has to cater to to stay gainfully employed. Fair enough, Josh. Fair enough. There, there, there aren't a lot of 26-year-olds listening to conservative talk radio this morning. The, the majority of us are. There's at least one. Of Well, I mean, sure, and you're, you're gainfully employed. <laughs> True. But the way you stay gainfully employed is to cater to. That's right. Folks our age. That's right. <laughs> or, or approaching our age, uh, if not. And apparently how you do that is play the theme from the movie Grease. Or you could operate as the federal government does. And we can relate. So these numbers are so astronomical. I mean, you gave that example of the, the total debt, you know, that the the country took on uh, up through 1969 and then how much we've done in the, in the last quarter. It's, it's crazy. Um, and I always like to try to, you know, look down the road and say, all right, you, you've identified how ridiculous this situation is. Um, and then try to figure out, well, is there a way to fix it? But these numbers are so, so astronomical. It doesn't seem like you can just say, all right, well, we just have to cut some spending or, or uh, ra- raise taxes or whatever, and we'll get us out of this mess. Well, I mean, there is no easy answer. You know that. I mean, you're not an economist. I'm not an economist. You're not a politician. I'm a former. There's no easy answer here. I mean, the answer isn't even simple anymore. I mean, there was a day it was fairly simple. I mean, it was never going to be easy. you got to stop spending money you don't have. Uh, you know, if you're accustomed to spending money you don't have, and you've been able to spend money you don't have, and there's been no consequence of spending you don't, money you don't have, you keep spending money you don't have, right? I mean, that's just the way the world works. But all of a sudden, if there's a consequence to spending money you don't have, you, you got to begin contemplating what to do about that bad habit that the country has gotten itself into. I mean, Rev, I believe there was a day we could fundamentally debate economic theories, trickle down, supply side. Some of the conservatives believed in that. Um, Keynesian, you know, government-induced growth. I mean, I, I think that's a legitimate debate. Um, the problem we've gotten ourselves to is the entitlement programs, obviously, are a big weight. I mean, you paid in, but they squandered the money. I mean, that's the big problem there. And then we allowed people to retire too soon and collect benefits too soon. I'm sorry, we just did. We didn't model our Social Security or Medicare model based on life expectancy. And it was hard to do that because you tell people, hey, you know that promise we made that at the age of 65, I think mine's 66 years and six months, somewhere there about. That's my full retirement age. My, mine should be 68 or 9 or 70. Josh's should be 72, 73-ish, somewhere there about. Um, but that's, that's a pretty simple understanding. You don't have to be very complicated and financially savvy to understand that if you're going to give somebody a benefit beginning at 62 and they die at 72, and then you give that same benefit at 62, but they're dying at 79. That's seven more years of giving that benefit, and they didn't model for any of that. But but here's some things that have really exacerbated the problem recently, the refinancing of debt. I mean, we're, we're, we've got debt maturing and coming off at one, two, two and a half, two, three quarter percent going back on the debt roll at five, five and a quarter percent. Government debt. That's correct. That's correct. I mean, some of the debt matures. They pay the debt, um, they pay the interest on the debt, and and all of a sudden, the debt that you had financed, let's say of the $34 trillion, we had $5 trillion financed at, on an average of two and three quarter 
5%, all of a sudden the refi of that debt is 5%. I mean, that's an astronomical amount of money. So the interest on a car payment, I mean, if you go from uh, 25 to 5%, probably getting astronomical. But on trillions of dollars in debt, it, it is astronomical. So we've got that problem. And then we've got, um, and then we got the revenue side. And Jamie Dimon's right. I mean, you're beginning to see decline in tax receipts. They're not going to talk about that. Last quarter of 2023, we were down about 60, uh, nah, about $160 billion in collecting. I mean, the economy's slowing down. Naturally, I mean, we're, we're quantitative, what they call QT, quantitative tightening. We're taking liquidity out of the economy. The consumer is tapping out. We know that with credit card delinquencies. The consumers are struggling a bit. Refi charges are more expensive. We've seen a slowdown in housing. You're going to see a precipitous slowdown in manufacturing. And, and we're going to eventually go into a pretty good recession. And unemployment numbers will begin to, I don't know if you keep up with it like I do, but there are a number of companies now beginning to lay off, uh, cut hours. I mean, the, the economy's slowing down. Tax receipts clearly, clearly show that. What Republicans have to do to be a part of the solution is accept raising revenue. So are there any tax increases out there that Republicans would be supportive of? But there's not many, but there may be a handful out there that Republicans uh, would consider. I'll, I'll tell you one that I'd sign up today for. I would tax university endowments. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're, they're tax exempt. They're, they're charitable organizations. The Ivy League in itself has $150 billion in endowments. I mean, I'm, that doesn't fix the problem. I mean, that, that would not be a lot of money. Tell you something else I think we could do. You ready? I'd love to hear your two takes on this. We limit the, we stop taxing the 6.2% Social Security tax on income north of what, 168000 168600 um, Let's tax it all. I mean, let's the 6.2% Social Security tax apply. If you make a million dollars a year, the 6.2 applies to the million dollars. I mean, we're going to have to make some tough mm -hmm. decisions, and we're going to have to make some decisions that are a bit disagreeable with our philosophy. Less taxes, you know, lower taxes leads to economic growth. I believe that. I believe that lower taxes empower the private sector to be more creative. The, the government does not allocate capital as well to the private sector. I don't care if it's state, local, or federal. I mean, the, the, the government does not make the best use of that dollar that I mean, the private sector is not perfect. We have foreclosures and we have bankruptcies and we have failures and we have bad widgets and lawsuits. I mean, the private sector is, is, is a bit of a muck, but, but government has no incentive to be profitable, no incentive to be uh, efficient. I mean, some are, some are not, but I think when you look as a, a, through the lens of a conservative, it's going to be easy to embrace tax increases. If you're a Democrat, Right, I mean that that you, you kind of stand for bigger government, better funded government. But if you're a conservative, the only way out of this quandary we find ourselves is is to cut spending, and they've got to do that. I mean they they can probably cut spending to the tune of three or four hundred billion dollar discretionary money. Now, now once again, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, debt or service in the debt that's not discretionary. I mean those are on autopilot. Um, there's a transfer that happens every day, I would imagine, from the federal government to the Social Security Trust Fund to make sure we meet the obligations that, that we're on the hook for. And then you've got Medicare funding. It'd probably be similar to that. I don't run uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, but I would imagine that's how it works. There's daily transfers of enormous amounts of money. 
that go to the Medicare funds so they can pay uh, what we've agreed to pay. But but then you look on the you got to begin looking on the periphery of that. Okay, let's say that at some point in time somebody reforms Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, and and we get that a little better under control. We're talking about we're not talking about now. We're talking about spending curves. I mean that's kind of the language in that world. Can we? I mean we got a severe spending issue in Medicare in Social Security. But if we change the benefit model, we can address that pretty quickly. I mean if if the if the Congress met today and said we're raising the retirement age of anybody under the age of 40 to 72 years old, 73 years old. I mean, that, that changes the model. I mean, that, that gets us off the hook in, in the eventual, you know, uh, bankruptcy of the Social Security trust because it is somewhat of a Ponzi scheme, but Medicare is somewhat of a Ponzi scheme. I think Republicans have to look long and hard at where they're willing to raise revenue. And two places I would be willing, I could probably sit down and really evaluate and do a better job, but on the fly, and from what I've read, I would probably agree to add or allow the 6.2% Social Security tax to remain on incomes wherever they go. I mean, if you make it a million bucks, and I'm going to tell you, this is going to be so anti-conservative, you won't imagine, but we're still going to keep the cap in place. And basically, you're, you're giving the government 6.2% of your income that they don't deserve. I mean, they don't deserve it because you're not getting the benefit in return. But if you make north of $168,600, let's say you make a million bucks. I mean, there's about $832,000 that you're getting taxed on that you're going to receive no benefit. That would be, I mean, I could argue patriotism. I mean, helping the country. But we've got to tax these Ivy League endowments. University endowments can't escape taxation because they become far less educational and far more cultural and societal. Mm-hmm. Take a break. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661937. Uh, we have these prayer lists and prayer chains and, you know, pray for people. And I'm pro- DW is, is infamous for social media and being a prayer warrior. And, and I mean, sincerely, genuinely praying for people who need to be lifted up in prayer. The one person, uh, the few people that I think we need to begin praying for um, this week, Josh, I mean, there's a lot of carnage in the world. There's a lot of distress in the world. There's a lot of uh, humanity that needs to be uplifted in the world. But I really believe at the top of that list today and probably for the next year are the family members of Nick Saban. <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> somebody like him as intense as he appears to be, can you imagine him not going to coach football every day, but rather hanging around the house? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe he'll mill what's, what's her name, Terry? And his wife's name, Terry? I think so. Yeah. Can, can you imagine what life will be like without him on the recruiting trail, without him watching film, without him winning championships? I'm the most intense guy on the planet. All of a sudden, doesn't have much to do. Can you imagine being the <laughs> grandkid that cuts the grass at the lake house and misses a spot or two. When he when he's out trying to win games at Alabama, he's occupied, right? I mean, he doesn't even see the spot or two or three that got missed. Miss Terry says, hey, you need to do a little better job cutting that grass next time. I know you're nine, and I know you want to make some money, but, but you missed a few spots there, and she hugs him. Can you imagine Nick Saban not coaching football and his nine-year-old grandson missing <laughs> four or five places cutting the grass? What are you doing? You stuck... <laughs> <laughs> so so I think we all need to lift the Saban family up in prayer because Nick Saban 
one of the most intense human beings on earth, ain't got a lot to do right now. <laughs> so, so that's going to be quite, quite the challenge. Oh my God. Can you imagine like being his daughter and all of a sudden say, so dad's retiring. Yeah. Oh God. I mean, what, what are we going to do now? I mean, <laughs> wow. Wow. I mean, they, they like all that financial benefit. I'm sure they like it. all the gravy that comes along yeah. with him out working his rear end off winning championships, making enormous amounts of money. But all of a sudden he's going to be home more. He's going to be more attentive to his family. Uh, more. I'd never heard him say, I want to love my family more. I think he said, I want to be with my family more. <laughs> I'm not sure he'd be the kind of guy the family would want to be with day after day after day. You're probably right. Yeah, no question about it. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Breeze, good morning. You know, you know those um, oxygen thieving cathedralists up in Washington would never give up the right of taxation for a fair tax. But, you know, get back to the Constitution. I believe that the cathedralists have read our Constitution and they know it better than we do, and they're afraid of it. And they can't have they can't have a Constitution that people actually follow like the one that was written. And I also believe that they felt like they need to get rid of about half of us. And the best way to get rid of about half of us is uh, a war. How many people died in World War II total? What did like 27 dead or more died dead? Yeah, it's over 25 million. Yeah, I I think nothing would please them more for about a billion earthlings. Pure, you know, this pure middle class, average Joe's, the guys that go off for war, and then the citizens. I think that they would all be all for that. And, and throughout history, what have kings and queens and dictators and presidents and emperors done when they were bad economic times or they were having problems with the, uh, the mob, so to speak, the mob being us? They found a convenient war, and then that. Reason that the patriotism, the sacrifice, look at all the sacrifices people made for World War II. Yeah, you know, they wouldn't need be, you know, the gas, all of that stuff in the name of patriotism. That's what they're going, that's what they're shooting for, kid. I think their solution to all of this will eventually be a huge war of a bunch of us died. And I think that's why you got to be in there and still in bunkers. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. Let's hold on to that because I made a point yesterday. And I tried to back myself. I mean, I, 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 yesterday when I left here, I went to the gym. I did a few other things. Rev and I did some podcasting. Um, but I, I basically accused the Democrats, and I think Josh buys into this. I basically accused the Democrats of already have embraced insurrection and rebellion against government. If the fundamental concept of our Constitution is to protect people from government, and not government from people, aren't the Democrats, in in essence, in theory, violating that Constitution by allowing government to be more intrusive, more abusive, more involved, more more taxation? I mean, in other words, you've got you've got a founding document that is the it's the bedrock of our nation. It's the central set of beliefs that we've ascribed to. I mean, unless we just say, "Hey, out with the Constitution, let's have a new Constitutional Convention and do a new one." I mean, we're still obligated. The courts are, are obligated to decide cases based on what? The constitutionality or not. And, and, and then we have this big debate about states' rights and amendments. And, I mean, we're having one about the uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment right now with Trump. But, but conceptually, 
And yes, I'm trying to be a bit provocative, but conceptually, if, if one political party believes that government should have power over its people and the Constitution says, no, I mean, this document is to protect people from the onslaught of government, how is that not an insurrection? How are you not rebelling against the central formula that the nation was founded upon? I mean, that was the difference in this country and others. We were going to try and experiment in self-government. And we believe that rights were unalienable, right? I mean, that, that's Jefferson's words. We believe that, you know, man has no right to um, reign over other men unless they win elections. I mean, that's the, the, the kind of the central theme of, of self-government. So our, our Democratic friends or our Democrat friends, I don't know if they're Democratic or not, but our Democrat friends, I mean, they believe that government needs to have more power, government needs to have more influence, Government needs to have more ability to level the playing field, socioeconomically, culturally, whatever. Um, the, the, the grievances that certain classes of people have against other classes of people, we're going to look to government, not the church, not the schools, not civic organizations. We're going to look to the, the government to make sure things are done as they need to be done. The Democrat Party today is an insurrectionist party. The Democrat Party today is rebelling against the central document that our nation still was founded upon and ascribes to. And if that's not where we are, then let's have a new constitutional convention and let's throw everything those guys did out the window. Let's start from scratch and say, hey, you know what those guys wrote 200-some-odd years ago? We liked some of it, some of it we didn't, and here's what we're adopting. Here's what we're adapting. Um, let's say the 14th Amendment or the, uh, the, the 25th Amendment, uh, the 28th Amendment. You, you see where I'm headed. I mean, we've had opportunities to amend the Constitution, but you got one party that says, I, I don't like the idea of people ruling over government. I like the idea of government ruling over, over people. And it really goes back to the debate on enlightenment. I mean, the Hobbes theory and the Locke's theory. Hobbes wrote the book Leviathan, and he basically said, you can't trust people. You can't trust people to govern themselves. The strongest and fittest survive, you know, the weakest and and, and most desperate, I mean, they, they'll be stomped into the ground. They just can't. And, and, and Locke said, no, nah, I mean, that, that's just the, that's the essence of the human experiment. I mean, that, that man's rights come from God. I mean, that there's a God in heaven. He, he, he kind of created a, a world that, that man inhabits, and man's rights come from where? Not some government authority, not some government agency, not some king or dictator, but rather God in heaven. And I, I think, I mean, I, I know that sounds wild. Because right now, Trump is an insurrectionist and the, the January 6th insurrectionist. But, but when, you, when you honestly evaluate the principles of our Constitution, you could easily argue that the majority, I didn't say every Democrat, but the majority of Democrats want bigger government, but they want higher taxes, that they want government to do X, Y, and Z. That, in essence, is kind of an insurrection and a rebellion against the, the constitutional government that we still Profess to abide by. Uh, professing is probably the right word. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Mike in Darlington. Hello. Uh, good morning. Uh, you're off to a great start. I think you're absolutely right about saving family, though. They they probably will need some prayer because he <laughs> seems like an obsessive type guy to me <laughs> and somewhat of a perfectionist. But uh, talking about what you were talking about as far as uh, raising the ages and everything about the debt, uh, 
you know, uh, that, that's probably a good idea, and it would, probably will save $100 billion or so. But I think you can, there's an elephant in the room here. That border is wide open, and for every alien that comes across that border, it costs at a minimum, at a minimum, eight or nine thousand dollars, and I think it costs more than thirty thousand dollars for every last one of them—a recurring annual expense. And that's uh, that—that's uh, just me. I'm not a super accountant or anything, but uh, I would have to say that that—that—that's a pretty big recurring expense, and uh, you can save some money there right away. I heard uh, the. Vivek or Vivek uh, Ramaswamy uh, last night, uh, just a little blurt from him, uh, he said he would uh, do away with entire agencies. Well, I can think of one that you could get rid of right now, and I don't. Th- I think it would improve the country greatly if you just got rid of the Department, Federal Department of Education. The states have their own Department of Education. Why they need with a federal one? And uh, the uh, uh, those those things have to those those are obvious big savings, and I think it's a good idea to tax those endowments for the especially for the Ivy Leagues. I think you ought to have a special special Ivy League tax to tax those clowns because I don't know what they're doing, but MIT has degraded something awful, and that that. Uh, I don't. I think we need to get back to teaching our children how to count and how to read before we start educating them on all this cultural stuff. It, I think if they're going to learn cultural things, how about the Bill of Rights? Let's start with the Constitution and just take out the Bill of Rights and, and make it a requirement that you have to be knowledgeable about the Bill of Rights before you can get a high school diploma. That's just my idea. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. You know, talking about some of the um, Ivy League endowments, I think it's $150 billion collectively that they have. I think Harvard's got the most. Yale may have um, the second most. They're both in the billions and billions of dollars. I don't think there's an Ivy League school with an endowment of less than $3 billion. I think, I mean, don't quote me on this. The Harvard, I mean, it may be $20 billion with a B. It's a thousand million, but it's 200, <laughs> what, 200, uh, 200 million, not 2000 million dollars. But that, just say it that way, 2000 million dollars in an endowment that is not exposed to any taxation. I think the other place you got to look is not for profits. I mean, I think there are legitimate not for profits, but I think there are illegitimate not for profits. And I think when you begin seeking revenue, instead of going to the working stiff, go to some of these organizations and, and factions that aren't paying taxes. Um, the thing on immigration, and, you know, I love to try and think of things that nobody else has thought of. Remember a couple of days back when I talked about the the migration population, the, 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 the net loss to blue states because of population leaving blue cities, going to red states, and how that was going to really fundamentally 2030 census will be the first census post-COVID. COVID hit in 2020, but that didn't really impact the census like it will in 2030. The Republican can lose Michigan, lose Wisconsin, lose Pennsylvania, win Arizona and Georgia, and win the presidency. I mean, if, 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 um, if trends hold true to form, I believe 
that some of the blue state governors and mayors complaining about immigration is a con job. I don't think they're mad at all. That some of the I think they want the federal government to help them pay for the relocation, the cost associated. But I think they're going to try to figure out a way between now and 2030 to get them censused, to get them on the books. I mean, if they're losing, let's say hypothetically, if Pennsylvania loses 300,000 residents, can they make up 150 via illegal immigration, get them counted in the census, and maintain their electoral Ooh, college that's votes? That's diabolical. Well, I mean, it's, it's politics. You want to play checkers, you lose in this game, Rev. Take a break. Mm-hmm. Back in a few. And yes, there's a reason I'm not talking about Fauci, and there's a reason I'm not talking about COVID, and there's a reason I'm not talking about in his transcribed hearing, he said, I can't recall over 100 times, the guy that knows more than anybody in the history of mankind about everything knows nothing yeah. when it's time to answer to Republicans in, in Congress. And the, the reason said, I'm, I am science. It's That's Friday, and I don't want to be mad. <laughs> I mean, this is very selfish on my part. It, it is something we should be discussing. I'll be angry Monday morning. And we'll talk about little Fauci um, come Monday morning. They made it up. I mean, they made it all up. They had no science at all about anything. They made it up as they went. But he was science personified, and we were not to question the, um, the medical dictator, the virologist extraordinaire, Dr. Fauci. But I don't want to get upset on Monday, I mean, excuse me, on Friday uh, morning, I'm going to the beach. I got me some good steak and some pre-breaded oysters. <laughs> NFL football on the weekend. Fauci gets my blood pressure up. So we'll get to him. We'll deal with um with the, n- n- the Napoleon virologist come <laughs> come Monday morning. Let's go to the phone. Sam and Cross Hill. Good morning, Sam. Uh, good morning. Sounds to me, Ken, like you've got uh, what I would call passive restaurant owner privilege with those good bread and oysters. So, hey, dur- during COVID, it wasn't a privilege at all. <laughs> it was called writing checks, and um, we, we have these come-up parties. You know what that is, Sam? I, I can come up with this much. How much can you come up with? Because when you're in the restaurant <laughs> business and, the Fauci, bills. Yeah, and Fauci says, uh, shut your business down, you know, re- revenue seems to plummet when that's the case. But uh, But, yeah, I am very passive. Well, anyway, uh, I know it's going to be a great weekend for you. Uh, uh, speaking about uh, uh, the threats to democracy, I want to throw something through my television every time I hear someone uh, from the Democratic side talking about that, because to me, another four years of the Obama-Biden administration will, will definitely uh, be a threat to our dem- democracy. But what I really called you about was you're talking about Saban and praying for his family. And I saw a really good exclusive interview last night. It was a YouTube interview with Tom Rinaldi, I believe, was had a sit down with him. And it was really, really a good interview. I encourage you to try to find it out there. But anyway, um, the good news for his family is that Saban said that they are giving him an office in the stadium. Okay, so he's got a place he can go to, and that's good for the family. And he, he actually reminded me a lot of you, Ken, uh, believe it or not, because he has business interest on the side, and I think one of the things that came through in that was you know, he's got a big Mercedes-Benz um, uh, dealership, I believe, that he runs. His son basically runs it. So, he, he, But what was, what was most interesting about it is that he said the reason he went ahead and, and decided to retire was that he was being asked, you know, by, by, by kids coming in to commit to another year, two years, three years, or whatever, and he just could not do that. 
uh, honestly and, and, and fulfill that. But um, uh, I think where he's going to wind up based on that interview, sounds to me he has the same passion about college football, obviously uh, probably a greater passion than yours, Ken, but I think he wants to get really involved in what's happening to college football these days. He did say that the NIL and the transfer portal did not run him. That, that wasn't the reason. But I think it was just the, the commitment that he was being asked to make uh, going forward. And uh, so uh, it was a really good interview, and I encourage you to, uh, to take a look at it. And I think you may see him in the broadcast booth, too, at some point. But, uh, Ken, I ask you this question. Um, whenever you are no longer able to uh, express your views and, and th thoughts and whatever, uh, where's your office going to be so that we don't have to pray for your family quite as hard? <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. I mean, I've got no intent to quit, but I can't. I mean, I like spending money, and to spend money, you got to make money. And, and I'm into several things that I, I enjoy. i got good partners. They're patient with me. I'm patient with them. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've built a life that requires me working, and, um, and I don't have any problem with that. I, I, you know, the song Toby Keith, and I think we played that song with the Don't Let the Old Man In. Um, I mean, I struggled turning 60. Rev knows that. I really did. I mean, birthdays don't, don't bother me. I don't like the attention. I don't like the Facebook crap. I mean, I just don't. I want to move on and move past. Um, but, but 60 was a bit reflective for me, and, um, but I'm just going to work as long as the good Lord gives me health. Um, the, the one thing I noticed about Saban, I told Rev this morning, the one thing, I, and I said it this way, I think I said, that rascal got out of that car at 72 and walked like he's 50 years old. I mean, he, he takes good care of himself, and he's going to have a good life. And unless something crazy happens, and nobody can plan for that, a car wreck, you know, some, some diagnosis of cancer. I mean, nobody, a, a plane crash, nobody can, can plan nor schedule that. But I think Nick Saban has been intensely committed to being his best, demanding of others to do, to do their best, and, um, and I've got a job I think he would be great at, the first ever college football commissioner. I mean, let's say been groomed the guy. He's 72. Let him do it for two or three or four years. Let him really understand and define what the job is. College football needs a commissioner. I mean, it does. It needs someone to, to kind of address some of the, some of the, um, the inexactness of the, of the game. It's a great game. It's a beautiful game. It's a spectacular game. But, but it's been mismanaged. I mean, it's been terribly mismanaged. And I think the one thing we could trust Saban to do is manage effectively. I mean, that's kind of been his legacy, the process. I mean, you, you stick to the process. You do, you do things um, that way. And, I, and yeah, I mean, I, if, if, if somebody said, hey, what would be the perfect thing for Nick Saban to do now? I would say make him the first ever college football commissioner, understanding that he's going to do it for three or four years, let him find his successor, let him groom his successor, and, and let's clean up the mess that is college football. I've never said I like NIL. I've never said I like transfer portal. I understand it. I mean, I absolutely understand it because the NCAA abused the privilege of collecting billions of dollars and not allowing the student athlete to participate in that, in that money. I mean, that, that's where we were. The student athlete had no leverage in any sort of negotiation. I understand uh, bags of money and the value of a scholarship. And I mean, when I was at Walford, we ate at a different time, same lunchroom, but we ate at a different time. Um, so, so the, yeah, but the athletes always had benefit, but does the benefit equal what they deserve? No, absolutely not. I mean, the student athletes get the scholarship. 
the value of that education is very abstract. But the university's getting, you know, their cut of a billion-dollar TV deal. The university's getting all this ticket money and concessions revenue. And, I mean, it, it, was, it was unbelievable. And, and I got to believe that somewhere some parent said, hey, I just saw where your coach signed a contract extension, and he's getting $10 million a year for eight years. He's getting $80 million to coach football. I saw where your coordinator is getting $2.5 million a year. I saw where the university of which you wear the uniform for is getting a cut of a billion dollar in TV revenue. And you're getting what? I mean, you're getting a scholarship, and that's valuable. There's no doubt that's valuable. But it's not proportional to what the schools were getting. And had the NCAA not been a bully and accepted that things are changing and times are changing, Let's give the student athlete more access to money, defer some payments, um, create some sort of insurance model. I don't know. I mean, th- there was a way to do it, to not force Ed O'Bannon. I mean, imagine a university being comfortable enough to put a kid on a video game. They get the money. I mean, they get the money that Ed O'Bannon was performing as a basketball player on a video game, and that's where name, image, and likeness came from. And you knew that they were going to lose that case. And if you're not careful, we're going to have college football players as employees of universities, collective bargaining, overtime, health care, all this complication of business. That's why I've argued, let the collective be funded by the university via TV revenue. I mean, don't go to the donors. The donors give enough now. I mean, good God, the money donors have given Ipte and the Gamecock Club. Good Lord, the support that people have. I've got friends of mine that bleed orange and garnet that choose every year whether to go on a vacation with their family or buy season tickets. And you're going to those people and say, hey, we need more money. Screw you. Pay the kid. Pay the kid via the collective. They're not employees of the university. You're still getting more than you know what to do with. And let's get this train back on the track. And I think somebody like Nick Saban could clean up the mess, the incident. The kid didn't make this mess. I mean, I've got people that don't believe the kid, or they don't like where we are, but they don't blame the kid. I've not seen anybody yet blame the kid. I mean, you know, the Bojangles deal, the car deal, and the other deal. The kid got to, he's disrespectful. He doesn't appreciate what we've done. Okay, that's human beings. I mean, that's not just college football players. That's human beings in general. But, but I think Nick Saban has enough clout and, and you know, uh, respect of the game that he could be the first ever college football commissioner. And let's fix what's broken about the greatest game man has ever known. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Yeah, we'll talk about Napoleon Fauci uh, Monday morning. <laughs> I want to save people from getting angry um, today. It's the greatest failure in my lifetime of our government, and it was intentional. I'm convinced of that. It was intentional. I don't want to go there. Let, let's stop with that. Let's talk yeah, you're about. You're going to get yourself going I mean, like you did a minute ago I mean, talking about nil. Yeah, you, you almost went there getting angry. Well, I mean, let's, you pounded on the desk. Remember twice. one of the last callers we had yesterday, and they were talking about insurrection and rebellion, and you know, uh, Trump did this and Trump did did that, and I offered up as a theory. I went back last night and read. I mean, I knew I was somewhat correct in, I mean, I didn't go through the lawsuit. I didn't go through the cases uh, that were filed, but there was um, basically argument for a pandemic exception. 
That's my words, not theirs. I mean, I'm arguing that in in Wisconsin, in Georgia, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, the states basically said in the most unique way imaginable that we can do things now because we're in a state of emergency that we normally don't do. And Secretary of States in Wisconsin, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania changed voting laws. And there's a fair argument about did they break the law? And that does go, it it leads into January 6th because here's the fundamental question I'd ask. And I'm not defending January 6th. I've I've never defended January 6th. Did Donald Trump ask Mike Pence to not certify the election because the election was not legal? There were illegalities in these states. Now, I understand the court said they didn't want to hear it. The court said they didn't have standing. And they basically, when I read last night, the courts argued that there is kind of this sense of emergency. I mean, I call it the pandemic exception. But there is no, the Constitution doesn't require, I mean, it doesn't speak to a pandemic exception. I mean, the Constitution says the state's legislative bodies are to decide the laws and legalities of how you vote, when you vote, where you vote, who can vote. Excuse me. And we know that these four states changed those laws without the legislature being involved. Now, now once again, the courts didn't say, yeah, but there's this pandemic exception. But they did. But they, they based it on a pandemic exception. So my point to the caller yesterday was when, when Trump asked Pence, and I think Trump was inappropriate. I mean, I've said that. I think he very inappropriately threw Mike Pence under the bus. I think it's the most egregious thing Donald Trump did in his presidency. And the way he did it publicly, I would agree. I mean, well, I mean you- Trump had been, excuse me, you, 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 we, we think we understand how Mike Pence is wired. We know the public persona. I don't know that we know what he does on his free time or does he drink a beer and sit around the fire and cuss like we do? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But he tends to present himself as a very moral and ethical figure, right? I mean, he, he, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a spiritual man. He uh, talks a lot about God, talks a lot about the, the cultural issues, matter deeply to him. So, so what, what I'm saying, Josh, is Mike Pence, to me, deserved the benefit of the doubt because he laid in bed at night you got to believe as Donald Trump's vice president, go, what have I gotten myself into? I mean, I, yeah, it's an honor to be VP, but this cat's crazy. I mean, this cat's just different, man. He doesn't, he's not from Kansas. You know, he's not from, I think, Indiana's where Pence was from. I mean, he, he's not from the heartland, so to speak. He's not salt of the earth. He's a different kind of dude. And I think Pence earned the right to not be thrown under the bus by never, ever, ever not supporting Donald Trump. And you know there were periods of time that Mike Pence struggled with some of Trump's antics and behavior. You know he did. Now, I'm not saying he should or should not have, but the way he's wired, the way Trump's wired, I mean, they're just different sorts of people. I'm not saying one's better than the other. I kind of like Trump. But, but you got to, I, I just think there's, a, there's a, a respect you owe to the guy that was your soldier. And you got you to account for, hey, I mean, Pence never bailed. I mean, Pence always did what we needed him to do. He never complained. He never balked. He probably got uncomfortable at times in the way we rolled. But in the in the most critical of moments, to, to, to Rev's point, he publicly threw Pence under the bus, didn't have the courage to do what needed to be done. And I, I just think that was – I mean, Trump talks a lot about loyalty. You know, loyalty is a two-way street. And I think that was disloyal to Mike Pence. Mm-hmm. But, but to Trump's – point and to the 
I mean, we're talking about the Constitution. I mean, the Constitution does not have a pandemic exception. I mean, the Constitution is very clear. The states are to administer elections, and the legislative body is responsible for the administering of those elections. So when Trump challenged Pence at certifying an illegal and corrupt election, he had legal footing. I understand what the courts did. The courts, and I told Rev one morning, because Rev was pretty optimistic about some information that was being revealed. And I said, Mayor, I said, Rev, I'm the Mayor of Realville. The courts ain't going to do this. I mean, the courts are not going to get involved in whether an election was fair or not. They're just not. Once we open that door, and we're kind of opened it anyway, with the Supreme Court eventually hearing where he could, whether he could be on the ballot or not, but they're not decided the outcome of a state. We had an election. Trump had X number of votes. Biden had X number of votes. And you're asking the courts to say, well, those votes didn't count. I mean, those votes weren't properly or legally cast. I don't think they were. But they had been cast. They had been counted. And they were waiting to be certified. So I think it's a very complicated matter as to, because we're arguing the obstructing of an official proceeding. If, if the election was corrupt, was it an official proceeding? Forget drop boxes. Forget unsolicited mail-in ballots. Forget chain of custody. I'm talking about the certification of an election where the laws were, or the rules were changed, pandemic exception, not by the legislature, but rather by a statewide elected official, which is unconstitutional. Now, we're splitting hairs here, and we're getting in the weeds, but when the caller yesterday challenged, you know, Trump on trying to stop the proceeding uh, or the, the, the obstruction of a official proceeding, if the legislature didn't change the rules, but the constitutional officer did, was it ever an official proceeding? Let's go to the phone. Charles in Lamar. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. I'm going to make a quick follow-up to uh, Sammy's call. I don't hear threat to democracy on TV because I don't watch anything on TV that would have that word in it. I just, I've, I've, I've sworn myself off of uh, MSNBC and Fox News and CNN and even CBS News. And I do a lot of reading. I read that a lot, especially on Twitter. And I hear it some on the radio. It's a threat to democracy. I have come to the conclusion that to the Democrats, threat to democracy translates as that is a threat to Democrat power. That's all that means. There is no threat to democracy itself. There is just a threat to their hold on, on power. That's my two cents. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. I'll offer an yeah. odd argument. You want a real odd argument? If 58% of Democrat voters in America today believe that socialism is better than capitalism, I mean, socialism is certainly not democracy, why wouldn't you vote for Trump? If Trump is a threat to democracy, you believe in socialism, he's your guy, right? I mean, you don't like democracy anyway. I mean, the majority of Democrat voters today say publicly in a poll, I guess privately in a poll, they answer the question. But I mean, there's not speculation. We speculate that, that the majority of Democrat primary voters believe that socialism, I mean, I think I've known that for a long time. They don't like to call it socialism, but that's what it is. I mean, it's, they like to refer to as, um, you know, you didn't build that and you got to share the wealth and all those. I mean, that's socialism. I mean, it's at least collectivism, at least redistributionism. There's a fair argument to be made about, well, all government is some to some degree collective and redistributionist. 
I mean, it is. I mean, government takes from people who do well and give to those who don't do so well. Um, I mean, the, the billionaires paying a larger share of that bridge across that river via taxes, but everybody drives on it. I mean, he didn't get to go faster than you do because he paid more in taxes to build that bridge. But but I, I just I offer that as a kind of a weird theory. If Trump is a threat to democracy and 58% of Democrat voters ascribe to the notions of socialism, it stand a reason you're a Trump voter. Take a break. <laughs> Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. I've got a lot of things here that I intended to talk about, and I've got one here, Napoleon Fauci, but I don't want to get angry on Friday. I want to wait until Monday. I'll get angry with you, um, and I'll have time to read some of the transcribed hearing. Uh, he didn't appear in public, but they say over 100 times he said, I can't recall. So the guy that knew everything about everything can't recall when it's time to be um, eventually held accountable. Um, we have all three members of the delegation uh, here with us this morning. Th- this is this is simultaneously the delegation hour and the delegation hour. I will say this, and, and I think, Rev, you talked a little bit about John Fetterman surprised us. <laughs> I mean, the <laughs> stroke, stroke kind of reoriented his brain, and he's actually very critical of the southern border and some of the other um, issues that the Democrats find to be acceptable. So, um, I mean, the, the guy had a, a pretty serious stroke. We wondered whether he would get better or not. He has gotten far more coherent, and he seems to be drifting off a little bit to the right. I don't want to call him a um, a right winger yet, but he's got a um, a different opinion than the Biden administration. If you had a bingo card, that was not on the bingo card for this year. Not at all. Not at all. I think he's two guys. I think he's hoodie John Fetterman. <laughs> That's the nut. And then he, when he puts a suit on, he gets a little bit uh, more in the mainstream. Um, 843-661-0937 is our number. I have a captive audience, so I don't get many chances to do this, but I got to get these three guys on the record. They're going to deal with the budget. They're going to tell how important that is. They're going to deal with funding of education. They're going to tell how important that is. Uh, Rick and Bob's got things going to the Senate. Lowe and George got things going to the House. Everybody is waiting with bated breath on what you guys are going to do about name, image, and likeness. And I have friends in high places, and they tell me that there is a process underway. In other words, the state of South Carolina will have uh, an attempt to pass NIL legislation that allows the Gamecocks and Tigers to be a little more, and Shauna Clears, for that matter, to be a little more liberated, hence competitive, in the NIL space. Any of you guys, I mean, I understand you're doing insignificant things like budget and education and law enforcement, but but I want to know where you stand today on college football <laughs> and can we empower uh, our beloved universities to compete with the uh, with the Saban-less Alabama Crimson Tide of the world. Oh, you're pointing at me. Yeah, I'm pointing uh, at you because I talked to you yesterday about it. <laughs> I don't want to blindside these two guys. They may not come back. You had fair warning. They'll come back, I promise. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, it's going to go through the process, which is a good thing. You know, it is in the beginning of the process. Uh, the, the Education Committee, I, I believe they have a bill. That, that scares me already. <laughs> scares me you, already. Where else are you going to put it? So scares me already. It's going over the Education Committee. They're looking at other states and, and um, some of the things that have transpired in other states. Um, it's one of those things you don't want to get it wrong because uh, it, it has financial implications, education implications, legal implications. It's it's really a mixed bag of a lot of different things 
piled into one. Um, but I do think there's a sort of a air at the state house of, you know, if we don't deal with this, like other states are having to deal with this, we're going to be left behind in this and we don't want to put our schools in an uncompetitive situation. So it's, it's, you know, being, being worked on, being other states are being looked at. And I think you'll see a product of some sort it won't be the finished product. It won't be that showroom ready product, but you'll see a product come over, um, for before too long. Okay. Low Jordan gave us the lawyerly answer. You told me in a text, put in the bill, what needs to be in the bill. And let's make sure the Gamecocks, Tigers, and Shauna Clears are as competitive as everybody else is. Do you stand by that? No, I absolutely don't. <laughs> First of all, we're going to preempt this and just completely defund Clemson, okay? That, that <laughs> yeah, happy, right? yeah, we're talking. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. But of course no, I called the speaker and I said, is. look, we got to do something. Can I help? He said, there's one already being worked up. But it's not going to be the Ken R diversion. So I'm hoping that you'll help me with an amendment so we can strengthen this to, to make sure we covered it all. But but I know they've, they've met with universities and they're they're slowly wading into this. But you know everybody's getting ahead of us while they're slowly wading. And, and Mike, that puts people like us in in philosophical conflict. You, you've got this belief. I mean, Low Jordan, you, me, Baker, John, all of us believe that less government's better government. But all of a sudden, Missouri and Ole Miss take off like a jet. Florida State builds a championship-caliber program. Clemson and Carolina are under the purview. They're state-funded institutions. They're public uh, higher education institutions. So you do have to work through that that personal conflict. Yeah, and I don't think anybody could look at Missouri and not see that there was a, a, a cause and effect of what they did. Uh, they had a really good football season and the majority of Gamecock fans, myself included, are tired of saying, well, maybe next year. Or worse yet, saying, boy, remember those Spurrier days? Those were good days. Oh, you know, ch- clowny with a chance of pain. Like, we're, we're saying statements we made 10 years ago, for crying out loud, the glory days. I think South Carolina has to decide what's important to us. And if the citizenry says we do want a championship level, even a competitive level football team, then this is going to be something we need to consider. So I, I think that the, the proof is in the pudding, and if we don't do it, we'll be relegated to irrelevancy. Philip, I want to start with you on this because I want to get back to this. I mean, that, that's a serious matter, but but it is out of the. I mean, it's out of the mainstream. I mean, you guys are normally not dealing with what college football athletic programs can do. I mean, I get bonds and buildings and all that and funding higher education, but I want to get back to something that I find a little bit concerning, and and you would be the person that could answer this better than anybody. Um, I think both all three of you will find this kind of interesting. I went back and looked this morning or last night. Since the beginning of our nation until January 1969, we accumulated $354 billion in debt. I mean, that's where we were. Revolutionary War, 1969, $354 billion in arrears. In October, December, October, note, last quarter, 2023, October, November, December, 2023, the federal government ran up a deficit of $510 billion, half a trillion in three months of money that we don't have. Biden has run up the debt $6 trillion in three years. The majority of that money, or some of that money, not the majority, a lot of that money made its way to state government. State and local governments gave you the ability. I mean, you said we got so much we don't know what to do with, and we didn't ask for it. They just kind of sent it um, down our way. Now, in that same article I read, Federal tax collections are down in the last quarter of 2023 compared to 2022. Jamie Dimon said yesterday 
he's not as bullish on a soft landing as some of the others. What do we know about how much money we'll have? I mean, you've talked about the overabundance of funds and the ability to do some pretty cool things. Those days are over, I think. But where do we stand? You're on the ways and means. I got to believe when you get there, you'll start on on the budget. Where where do we stand in what we anticipate revenue to be? We'll have about a billion dollars of non-recurring money, and I think about six hundred million of recurring dollars. That's a good budget year. Florida, I mean, this whole area is starting to grow, and in South Carolina is the fastest growing in the nation. So we're lucky. There are some some states out there that are suffering, and what they did was they took government money from the feds and they plugged in recurring holes with non-recurring money. So they, they basically hire a bunch of people and they don't have the money the next year to keep paying them because that money has dried up for them from the federal government. We don't have that. We, we have a good resilience plan, a, a, a good reserve that's put behind, and we're in great shape here in South Carolina. So it's going to be, I would say, one of the – the best budgets other than the last two years we've ever had. That were kind of make-believe. I mean, you, you've, you've even oh, yeah. said that. I mean, that, that was crazy to believe that was going to remain. Jay, I want to go to you, and then I'll go to Mike in a second. In the House, what do you perceive the priorities to be? I mean, if it's a normal budget year and you have normal budgeting priorities, a lot of the money's already spoken for, but what do you sense the House wants to address? Well, I think you'll see several things. You're going to see kind of a commitment to the things that we've been committed to in the recent uh, past. Uh, you know, um, economic development, education, infrastructure, those type of things. Um, one of the things I think that we have recognized over the last year or so, um, as Philip said, we're growing tremendously. And with that growth um, comes some growing pains. Energy is at the top of that growing pain list. We don't have the energy capacity we need to be able to accommodate the growth that we're sustaining here in South Carolina. So energy is part of infrastructure. You know, I think sometimes we get – um, we forget about things like energy and Internet as being Internet access and, and the infrastructure that goes along with that. We think about roads and sewer and those kind of things. But if you don't have the capacity to um, provide lights and, and heat and those kind of things by way of your, your, um, your, your grid, you're not going to sustain uh, any kind of growth, much less help the people that are already here. So I think you'll see, again, a commitment to the things we've been committed to and then a recognition of some of the things that – have been caused by not not necessarily bad things. I mean, growing pains are part of life. I'd rather have people coming to South Carolina and growing. Um, don't want to grow too much, too fast. That's the issue. Mike, in the Senate, I mean, Ways and Means, and then the Senate's got the Finance Committee. Uh, who have you talked to? What have you heard? What do you think your your priorities will be in agreement or not with, with the House? Yeah, there's certainly hard priorities. Uh, the challenge is that the hard priorities don't always line up um, in terms of what each individual senator wants. I mean, roads has been a big conversation we've had. Uh, I'd like to see more focus on I-95 here in an air, in this area. But candidly, we've got the, the Midlands senators that have talked about malfunction junction and how no, more money needs to be put in there. And then we've got the upstate, including uh, my chairman of Senate Finance, who certainly is aware of the, the upstate and I-85 and, and the, the I-26 up there. So roads is important to accommodate our growth, uh, but we need more on I-95. And, and I, I think that needs to be a focus there. Um, the southern border, while that's a federal issue, we've had some pretty re relevant conversations on what we as a state are going to do to make sure as we have this incredible growth, we protect South Carolina and the South Carolina way of life. Um, that we don't become a kind of state where you've got liberal governors who start shipping uh, illegal immigrants here. 
uh, in how that affects our infrastructure, how that affects our public services, our education. Um, there's a consequence if we allow that to happen and we don't address it, not including uh, the fact that, you know, how much fentanyl would be coming in, how, how much crime comes with that. So how we're going to address that at the state level when it's a federal issue is a conversation we've had. And, and I don't think the answer is there yet, but at least we're having a conversation. Okay. Well, explain. Uh, Philip, you want to jump in? I'm sorry. Yeah, the, the first thing we talked about was the tax cut. So there's going to be $100 million in tax cuts that we promised and, and everybody wants for heading towards 6%, which is really going to be a 3% when you really analyze the deductions and all of it. So the state is, is doing what it said and we're going from seven to six and another 1% this year would be a hundred million. So we made sure that's the first priority. And then we've got teachers and law enforcement that will continue to get some pay raises. Uh, state employees will get something this year. So, uh, you know, when you you take out a few things you have to do, which are Medicaid and things that are just insurance that's gone up and all, but we're going to have a little extra money this year to continue some projects that are meaningful, but we won't be as heavy in the projects we're earmarked this year. It'll be smaller. Okay. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937. If you spend $5.99 a month, you can listen to the private conversations we have. The real, the real dirty side, of, the meeting before the meeting is what we always called it on council. Um, you guys have that council meeting, but I've already met. Oh, that's pomp and circumstance. Yeah, for five ninety nine, for the measly fee of five ninety nine every month, you can um, you can be a <laughs> member of Wake Up Carolina Premium Edition and be privileged oh, to man. these conversations that we don't want anybody um, to hear. It's kind of the um, can we get the NIL treatment over here? We get like a penny of it. Or something? Yeah, yeah Rick Boss coming out of his jacket. See, it's getting hot in here now. It's getting hot in here now. He said more than five ninety nine. He said I'm not in for five ninety nine, but ten ninety nine. Now I'm I'm a part of that. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Williams in Orangeburg, listening to WTQS. You are on with the delegation this morning. Okay, Ken. I got, I got one thing. You told me yesterday that the insurrection at the Capitol was two hours, so you moved to three hours. I got facts. I checked YouTube, I checked Facebook, and I checked a guy I know in the Washington Post. It started at 12.53. It ended at 5.40. It was 100, 140 police officers were hurt. And I, I got one more, one more thing for you, Tim. I ride down 78. This joint at um, 95 and 78 named Carter. The gas is three, I mean, 238. Have a good day. Thank you, Williams. Appreciate that. <laughs> so the, the, the riot, Williams says an insurrection. Yeah, right. The riot was not two hours, not three hours, but rather four years. My point yesterday was the Democrats are talking about the 14th Amendment and Section 3. That speaks to the Civil War. And if you're talking about four hours, let's give Williams the benefit of the doubt. Five hours. Let's say Washington Post, Google, and, and Facebook are right. Who are you weeded out the Washington Post, Google? And, and again, he said and insurrection Facebook. lasted I mean, four hours. Uh, we'll say. But we're applying the same. The Democrats are applying the same standard. And you guys can jump in here. But this is, I mean, you guys pay attention to all this, and it matters. So, so the debate we had yesterday is the Democrats are saying it was an insurrection, and the 14th Amendment, Section 3, should apply. There's no denying that the reason the 14th Amendment was put in place 
is to disallow insurrectionist Confederate soldiers and officers from holding public office in the federal government. They were insurrectionists. They rebelled against government. They loudly and proudly said, we are that. And the Democrats are basically equating January 6th and what happened to the Civil War. And I said, the riot was four hours. I'll give Williams the benefit of that. Four hours. One unarmed lady died. In the Civil War, it was four years and somewhere between 600,000 and a million people died. And there just is no... There's no fairness to arguing uh, those points mutually. Mike, I mean, you guys have opinions on these, and I know you do. Yeah, but I think using the word fairness with a, a radical left argument doesn't always equate. It's, it's not fair. It fits their narrative, uh, but it's not accurate. It's it's a complete misrepresentation of comparing one against the other. Low? Yeah, I don't know. How many four or 500 insurrection riots over the summer? I mean, come on. This is silly. It's. It's a silly discussion. It doesn't even warrant discussing. There's no insurrection. There wasn't a gun. How many? How long do we stay? Were we there in the morning? I mean, did we wake up with a new country? Come on, guys. Well, and, and, and Jay, to that point, um, the comparison is what? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not proud of January 6th. I mean, I wish it had never happened. But but there's there's kind of an alternate story, and I think, Lowen and, and the more the people are told to compare this to the Civil War, the better Trump's numbers appear to be. In other words, to all of our points, the public seems to be saying, I mean, I get it, man. I wish it had happened. But but to, to try to lock the guy up for life and disallow him from running office, I mean, it seems to me that the public and the polling are finding some fairness in this. Well, I think it's directly connected to that underlying, you know, go back to when Trump said, I'm one indictment away from locking it up. You know, we all remember that. And, we and, laughed then, and, but we're not laughing well, now. <laughs> but but it, it spoke to this idea that the more you you violate the principles of truth, the more you you stretch that truth and you break that truth, and you just you know you say up is down and down is up, and you just I think people look at at, at the media and all the folks that are doing that and say that's crazy, and it, and it drives a certain amount of um, you know. Well, I wasn't for him before, but if, if they're going to treat him like this and they're going to you know manipulate what what is fact, what I can see with my own eyes, and, and not to pick on anybody, particularly the caller, because I think it's great when people call in, but you know we're going to use Facebook as a mechanism or a means to prove what we're what we're looking at. Facebook, the 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 uh, platform by which anybody can go on and say anything without any kind of fact, and then people can comment and make up things and manipulate the facts we're going to use that as a mechanism to prove our case it's just another example of you know you can't have an honest discussion with someone who won't use the truth as the underlying foundation of the discussion but mike people tend to be finding fairness whether it's facebook whether it's google when 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 the attempt to take trump down accelerates his numbers go up that tells me that people are seeing through some of what's happening. It's restoring a little bit of faith I have in humanity that they know when they're being misled. See, and the reason I think fairness is so important, if we're going to talk about January 6th and we wish it hadn't happened, but I don't hear the same outrage about the 30 and 40 youths who will walk into a CVS and just shovel items off the shelves, or they'll go into a Target, or they'll go into any local grocery store. Um, even like small grocery store folks who are folks who have put their entire life savings 
into their business? Where is the outrage for the, the regular people, those of us in this room, those of us in South Carolina who you just get up and you go to work, the disruption of our life, if we're going to talk about a riot, I think it's a riot if you can't go to the grocery store and feel safe because law enforcement in some states and some cities allows that to happen. And they'll stand back and they'll even tell you, if you try to stop them, we'll arrest you because we think that's a violation of their. Where, where is our nation that you can go in and shovel items off a shelf because you feel that like you entitled to be able to steal? That's a riot in my mind. Let's, let's go to the phone. Someone's there. John in Aner. Good morning. You're on with the delegation. Good morning, guys. I mean, I, I'm just calling in because I get tired of hearing Williams every morning. Well, when you Trump go down there and stop it? When you go down there and stop the, the rat, the rat? It's not an insurrection. Nobody's been charged with an insurrection. And if the man had a went down there, then they got him where they really want him. Nobody broke. Nobody busted windows except <clears> the Fed, <throat> Antifa, Ray Epps. Ray Epps ain't been charged with a dime. Everybody else is getting the charge. They caused the right to get out of control, and they should be charged with it, not Trump and not the Gen Sixers. need to let those people out and charge the real people. Appreciate you, gentlemen. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. You know, I think the biggest Why did Travis... I think you had something to say? <laughs> why, why did I think that you had something to say? It's going to be mild. You know me. So the travesty is the get, weapon. Get that in our ill bill pass. Let's not worry about this riot. I'm sorry. It's the, hey, the don't travesty. the gunslinger. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, maybe don't maybe get riled up now. So, this the travesty is is the weaponizing of government of government agencies. That's that's where we're. That's the fear right here. That's bigger than Trump. That we sit back and think if the CIA or FBI has had anything to do with this, if they're and it appears there, there's some conspiracies out there, but it seems pretty real. I mean, we remember that they were bugging Trump's office back in '15 and '16 as he was running for president. So. We know that they're capable of this, and and I think they do fear if he gets in office, there's some retribution. So they may be assisting this. I mean, they're covering their tail. But, but Jay, you're as reasonable as anybody I know, and I mean that as compliment. I, mean, I do. I mean that in the most complimentary way imaginable. Um, Christopher Ray, in a hearing, refused to answer whether there were FBI assets that had infiltrated the events of January 6th. I mean, the only answer is no. I mean, the only answer is emphatically no. The FBI doesn't do that. But Ray, under oath, before a congressional committee, said, basically, I'll take a pass on answering that question. How do the public have faith in government when the head of the FBI won't say emphatically no? That's a crazy question. We don't do that. But, but, I mean, that's kind of where we find ourselves. Well, I think it's worse than he took a pass on the question. I think he was saying, you're not entitled to an answer to that question, Mr. American public. You know, and, th- and think about that. That's where you've gone off the edge when the people that the agencies are designed to protect and designed to benefit, we don't know you an explanation. You know, that's one of the great things about, about democracy and government, you know, you run for office, you answer to the people that elect you, and then on a regular basis, you know, we don't have the debates on legislation in, in the back room. We do it out in public. We do it in open uh, open format. We record our votes, and we record everything that's said, and it's on the record. And and, and we and, and, b- and before we even get to the floor of the House or the Senate, the public has an opportunity to participate and come and testify because we have an obligation to the people. So when the when the federal agency says we don't have to answer your questions, 
That, that is a direct insult and should scare people as to what is truly, what is true. The question should be, what are you truly doing then? And, and, and Mike, and we'll take a break. Josh, give me two seconds. And Mike, the concept of the Constitution is government being afraid of people, not people being afraid of government. These guys, it is, I mean, it does make you fearful when you wonder whether or not the FBI would cross that line and, and, and do those sorts of actions. And we shouldn't just be concerned about the FBI and, and what they may do to a political rival, which in and of itself is inexcusable. Um, and scary. It's scary. But the IRS, what if the IRS decides, you know what, I think we're going to silence the folks in Florence, South Carolina. They can financially cause the kind of heartache and hardship that will ruin a person. And unless you're one of the elites that can afford to fight back with a high-dollar attorney, if the IRS says we've decided to go ahead and, and levy you and, and put a fine on you, what does a regular person do to fight back? That becomes a financial type of war. And that's, the, that's really the central argument of this presidential debate. Let's take a break. I know we got a call. We'll get there as soon as we return. The things we don't do to bait our legislature. they got theme songs now. <laughs> Jay, the, Jay, the we'll, we'll, I mean, it's just recommendations. I mean, um, we got the Gunslingers theme song. We'll have to give you guys nicknames and theme songs and whatnot. The, thing, the, the, the levels we stoop to to make sure our delegation comes in here it's a little bit embarrassing, but it is it is what it is. As long as it works. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jim in Florence, good morning. You are on with the delegation. Hey, good morning, guys. So uh, we talk about uh, uh, what these, these bandits are doing uh, at CVSs, and uh, we talk about the crime. Um, but the problem is, Mike, is that those places just aren't as sacred as the Senate chambers um, where Senate staffers make homosexual sex tapes um so let's uh, yeah spare me right u.s senate right yeah Yeah, right (laughs) yeah make sure that's the u.s senate excuse me u.s senate i apologize so um i'm not sure uh if y'all saw it the uh rick hubbard the 11th circuit uh solicitor uh in lexington uh, recently had a town hall with, I think, David Pascoe, who's also a solicitor. And he talked about, he went into depth about a case he had with Todd Rutherford, who was a uh, defense attorney uh, for a guy that was charged for stabbing, uh, six, I think it was like a 16 or 17-year-old boy to death at a cookout somewhere in Lexington, uh, cookout restaurant after a football game. And he talked about how uh, Todd Rutherford used his legislative immunity to continue to delay and delay and delay and delay the trial um, that he had a that this guy had a plethora of witnesses for, um, and then then when he finally ran out of legislative immunity um, and was supposed to show up for court and there was all this documentation showing um, uh, messages back and forth, emails back and forth about um, scheduling this trial. Todd shows up late and then tells the judge he never received any of this information. And the judge says, oh, well, maybe I sent it to the wrong email address. And, and the problem is, is Todd sits on the, the Judicial Merit Selection Committee and so has tremendous amount of authority when it comes to not just picking judges but keeping judges. And, and really for people that hold opinions like I do about how we should choose judges, I mean, Todd Rutherford is just the gift that keeps on giving. So, I mean, is there not a process that in the meantime we can at least get Todd Rutherford off of this committee, or how much longer does he have? Um, Because really and truly, if we talk about the legitimacy of our current model, 
Todd Rutherford is the poster child for why we shouldn't be doing what we're doing. So, I mean, how do we get rid of Todd Rutherford? Thank you. Thank you, Jim. I mean, I, I talked to Jay a little bit about this, and, and I, we've all agreed. Everybody listening has agreed there's no great way to be, put judges on the bench. I mean, you can you can poke holes at about anything we try to do. Um, I told Jay, I think yesterday, I said, Jay, I could get elected a judge. I mean, I was pretty good at running for office. I got no business being a judge. I wouldn't have a clue how to be a judge. But if it's purely on electability, I mean, I've always been pretty decent at that. So there is no good way to do that. But but I did tell, and I'll let Jay wouldn't mind me disclosing this, that Todd hurts the examples currently. I mean, he does. He really and truly does. And I don't have any idea what his motivation is. I'll ask you this way. I'll ask the three of you. Should there be a, uh, you know, a house, a, a state house code of conduct on, I mean, because I think Todd's abused that. I mean, I think Todd's a smart guy. I think he's a capable and competent guy. He holds a very prominent position in a very controversial issue, and he's not doing anybody any favors by allowing these to be publicly debated. Should the House consider some sort of reprimand or code of conduct, not just for Todd, but anybody who causes those sorts of issues? Well, certainly there's, there's, you know, 100 and, 24 House members and 46 senators, and and they're they're certainly not. I'll put myself first and foremost. We're not. We're certainly not perfect people, um, you know. And and when it comes to this process and this system, there are certainly more than a few examples where you can say that's just not right. I, I can give you one I heard the other day where a lawyer legislator goes to court some some part of the state, and he says uh, I'm here for this case, and so they say good, we want to do this one too. So I know I'm going to assert my immunity for this case, but I'm here for another case. That's that's unacceptable. You can't do that. Um, that that calls into question um, your integrity as well as the integrity of the system. So there are absolutely things that need to be worked out and, and flaws that need to be addressed with this process and system. As to the question at hand as to what happened in Lexington, I don't know that you can take one side of that story. I'd have more questions about, well, how long did that case sit, you know, before the solicitor, it, you know, what I get frustrated with solicitors sometimes is you hold a case for three, four, five years, and then all of a sudden you say, okay, we're ready to go. Well, now, wait a minute. You've had this case for three or four or five years, and now all of a sudden I'm supposed to drop everything going on for this particular case. And if it's an, and, and, and there needs to be a, a clearer path by which a case gets to um, trial if that's where it's going, and it needs to happen quicker. I certainly agree with that. We, and we're looking at things, ways we can speed up that process because victims need to be able to depend on their cases going to be heard um, quickly and efficiently. Um, and defendants need to be able to defend themselves, and law enforcement needs to have all the information. You know, one of the most frustrating things I see in law enforcement is the case is five years old before it gets brought to trial, and two or three of the key officers have moved away or retired or, you know, and now what do we do? So there, there's no doubt there's a whole lot of questions that need to be answered, and, and you know, the, the underlying reality is this. We have a process, an entire judicial process, that was built many, 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 many years, decades ago, and in the meantime, things have changed tremendously. We got a whole new, a whole, we have many, many new laws on the books. We have technology. We have a booming population, and we have to adjust how we do things um, to fit where we are today, so that it is equitable and fair and truly a justice process. But we got about three or four minutes. I want to make sure both of you have a chance to jump in here. But um, I mean, you guys convinced me several weeks back that a more conservative chief justice, and I'm talking about magistrate court and all. A more, a more conservative chief justice leads to a more conservative chief magistrate, and that could improve 
some of the, um, I don't want to say shenanigans, I mean, I think it's unfair, but some of the questions that the public has about the application of justice. Yeah, I see help on the way. Things are improving, and, and conservatives have finally got a chance now to, to really stack the bench with conservatives, and that's what's going on. There are 35 different candidates for judges crawling around that state house. You can't take a step without bumping into one. Imagine how long the voting line would be and the time you'd have to wait if the public had to figure out who they're going to vote for out of these 35 people. I don't think they'll plug into it. It's more than I want to plug in. I know it's my job, and I I do a lot of judicial screening, not on a a committee, but to try to figure out who the most conservative ones are. Uh, I just don't see how you can do that in a public election. So it's a lot of work. And, Mike, but this, this, this conversation is good. I think it's healthy, and it ain't going away. I mean, judicial reform is something you made a part of um, being in the Senate. Jay and Philip have talked uh, over and over and over about where we are, where we need to be. Um, I mean, th- I'm encouraged that there seems to be a very serious conversation about judicial reform. Yeah, I think the only answer, Ken, yeah, is a more informed voter. And I think that's so important because there's 170 legislators in our state and each one of those legislators is there because the voters allow them to be there. Like, I know we've talked before about the JMSC makeup. I personally don't like, like having lawyer legislators on it. I understand it's part of the component, but the reason I don't like it is because they're not all Jay Jordan. Jay's a man of integrity and honor. He loves his wife. He loves his kids. Like He puts character first, and I can't say that about every one of them that's on there. Some of them are there because it's really good for them and for their business and for their egos. And I think that there's a component of information that if a voter said, I'm going to take 30 minutes that I would have watched college football or watched Seinfeld or been on TikTok or Facebook, and I'm going to take those 30 minutes and investigate my options in terms of who I'm going to vote for, for city council, county council, legislature, school board, and I'm going to be more informed. What kind of person is this? What kind of decisions do they make? We're going to yield a better product, a better result in the seats of those elected officials right there. We need better people. And, Jay, we got about a minute, minute and a half here. You are trying to improve the quality of candidate, the quality of person in all places in our judicial. And I'm talking about from magistrates to to solicitors to Supreme Court justices. I mean, th- this is a truly broad issue. Again, going back to the, the point of you're trying to fix it all. You're not. Well, is it fair to say that the the magistrate system is the only problem we have? Absolutely not. You know, I, I think we need to begin the process of looking at our probate courts as well. You know, we have courts that were designed to function based on what we looked like as a state 50, 60, 70 years ago. A lot of things have changed. A lot of things are more complicated with the law especially. We need to adapt to the times of the day. The caliber of person is important. I mean, once again, I think I could get elected judge. I mean, I really and truly do believe I could get elected a judge. I would have no clue how to administer law. So so you're telling me that, that what we're trying to do is accept that it's more complicated, find people who are up to that job, who can complete that job. I, I'll put this on the table. I'd be the last guy to expect to this. I think you get better quality people when you raise the pay. I mean, I don't know what the pay needs to be, but I think you, you really enhance the ability to be fairer 
and 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 apply justice in a, in, a, in a better way, Mike. When you when you make it a little more lucrative opportunity, is that fair? Yeah, I think that is fair. When someone's got a, a better option to, to provide for their family, are they really going to have the heart to says, "I'm going to go take a, a thirty thousand dollar, twenty thousand dollar pay cut uh, to go serve in a job that's kind of thankless at some point?" And and Philip, you're all the ways and means. Some of that you you guys fund this. I mean, I think that's that's money well spent if you're in state government. And we just gave them a pretty good raise. The, uh, I'd say what maybe a 15, 20% raise a few years back. Trying to attract better quality candidates. Right, and we've also added courts because we have more people in the state, and you've got to have more folks to get it. Our, we've kind of built up this uh, this backlog right now, and COVID was part of the blame, but reality is we needed more judges. Okay. Thanks to the three of you. Um, Rod? Yep. What did you 20 seconds. So did you make a mistake? I, 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 yes, I flashed okay. 10 seconds okay. instead of 30. Josh is telling that me 30. Me. You're telling me yeah. 10. <laughs> Believe Josh. We don't have more time. Well, we, we, can yeah. play, we can play another rendition of Gunslinger. <laughs> now, it's 10. Now, now it's 10 seconds. Thanks to all three of you. Sorry we'll take that. We'll take a break. There's we'll five. Be, yeah, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jameson in Spartanburg. Good morning. You are on. Hey, Hey, you're on the air. Hey, hey gentlemen. Uh, just wanted to kind of say quickly, um, I hated that uh, I missed the delegation, but I did want to kind of say. Um, Hello? Yeah, this is Jameson. Sorry, yeah, I think yeah. I had you guys on my phone. Uh, yeah, you're on. No, I hate I missed the delegation. Um, just wanted to kind of say a, a few things. Happy New Year's to you guys. I know that breaks Josh's rule of the seven-day rule or whatever but um <laughs> you know first off just to those guys like folks don't realize after spending you know i spent four and a half years in the senate and uh you know politicians are the easiest folks to point fingers at and get mad at uh and it's very easy to and ken understands that he's been on that end of the deal um but you know starting this week until the summertime really you know they're missing kids basketball practices and baseball games and soccer games and dates nights with their wives and that kind of thing. So especially for you guys to have uh, those three gentlemen um, there that serve the way they do is a, is a huge uh, respect and um, something that should be applauded, I think, because um, we don't realize we think politicians are, you know, celebrities sometimes, but they don't realize what all they sacrifice to make $10,400 a year uh, to show up to Columbia three days a week. Um, so just thank you guys for that. And I wish, you know, I'm back up at Spartanburg visiting family and was just sitting here thinking at the gas station, uh, you know, I wish every part of the state had a show like this where we could sit down on a Friday for one hour with a few members of the delegation to hear what's going on. But to my knowledge, I don't think it exists. Um so that's a kudos to you guys and just appreciate y'all. Um, and it, before I get to my quick question, uh, a funny anecdote from the week when you guys were off, um, after we talked before Christmas, when I, you know, my routine every morning is, you know, get up at the same time, shave and shower and get ready to go to work. And when you guys weren't on, I had to find other crap to listen to. Like I was about to start watching The View or something. I don't know. <laughs> And Don't do that. There was one morning I ended up watching, no lie, the Strom Thurmond's uh, 24-hour filibuster. Not that I agreed with it, you know, the, what he was doing, but 
when he sat there and read, he was filibustering the 1957, you know, Civil Rights Act, and he read the Columbia phone book and his mama's cookbook. And so that's how desperate I got without you guys. So that is a very good compliment to the work that Ken and Rev and Josh do. But um, my question kind of was, and I really wish the delegation was still here to answer this. I saw last night, this was going in the judicial area, uh, one of their former uh, colleagues, Mandy Powers Norell, who's a lawyer, former legislator from up in Rock Hill, who is extremely competent and capable and wonderful, but lost her seat, I think, two years ago in the House. Um, kind of addressed it, and her only solution she could come up with, even though she thinks we have a pretty decent, not great, because there is no great way to elect judges, was to help make every state lawmaker a full-time position. And I don't think I agree with that, and I would need to, you know, ask more folks informed that I that have more information than I do. But she said, if you really want to fix this lawyer-legislator problem, then make it where they're full-time employees and you can have no outside business. Um, Again, which that's an extreme out-of-left-field take, I think. But I would love to hear, you know, your thoughts on that Um, because it would probably fix the issue. But I I know, you know, honest and good folks like Jay and Mike and – Philip, that you know, they don't want to leave their personal lives and their businesses, you know, just to go serve. Um, nor do I think that's the, the right answer. But it was a, a very interesting uh, topic that I'd never heard before, and I just wanted to bring up. And uh, I'll let you guys talk, and I appreciate it. And happy New Year! And uh, look forward to listening to you guys this year. All right, guys. Thank you, Jameson. Appreciate that. I mean, I've got an opinion, and I I talk out both sides of my mouth. I mean, I think there's beauty in the law, your legislator. Excuse me. And the citizen legislator, um, I mean, he happens to be a lawyer, so be it. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not hung up on that. I mean, I, I'm really not. Um, we talk about corruption and reform, and in my world, competency is rewarded. I mean, you're either good at it or you're not. And the bottom line in my world holds you accountable. That's where I come from. That's the only world. I mean, Rev and I were talking a few minutes ago. I mean, I, you know, being raised by a self-made businessman. I mean, that, that was essential. I mean, it was not negotiable. I mean, my mom loved us. My dad trained us. I mean, I'm not saying mom didn't train. I'm not saying dad didn't love. But my dad built a business in, in my adolescence. And I saw up close and personal commitment and perseverance and dedication and just sticking to it. Uh, you know, all those things and attributes, they, they're in my bones. I mean, I can't, I can't get out of that. I mean... Uh, you know, my, my, my perspective on life is shaped by, by that. So, you know, when someone says we need corruption reform, we need judicial reform. My answer is always, we need competency reform. We need really smart, competent people making big decisions for the largest amoeba on the planet earth called the U S federal government. And I don't think we have that. So, so Jameson plays out a scenario. You got these citizen legislators that make $10,400 a year. I mean, I made $38,000 a year and got a car and a little per diem being lieutenant governor of South Carolina. I mean, I, I was a statewide elected official. It was a part-time position. I think I made in the neighborhood of forty grand, and I got a state-issued vehicle that got me back and forth to work. They would pay me if I stayed in a hotel. You know, but I didn't. I came home every night. 
just in my best interest and accepting that every man is two seconds from stupid. I mean, I'll say that loudly and proudly. I mean, a lot of folks like to believe, well, I mean, I, I never do that. Well, the world's full of people who said I'd never do that. Courtrooms are full of people who said I'd never do that. I can't say I would never do that. So accepting my human frailty and imperfection, I came home every single um, night. But, but when you start talking about is it a career, should they make more money, how do you get a better government? I mean, I think all of those things are, are, are worthy of discussion. There is no easy answer. On one hand, I like the idea of someone not making a lot of money but providing a public service. On the other hand, I say, wow, wouldn't you get a better quality candidate if you paid them a good wage and it was their full-time job? Wouldn't you get a better government if we didn't have part-time legislators? Yeah, I mean, you probably would. Um, what if you had lobby reform? What if you didn't allow lobbying? I mean, there, there's a million conversations that derive from the, I don't know, the, the central argument, how do you get a better government? And I think that's what we should all strive for. I think that should be our... Our, our mission every day when we talk and then and, and work, how do, how do you get a better government? It's hard to argue today that we have a good government. I mean, it's just hard for me. I don't, I don't say government does everything wrong, and I don't believe government gets everything wrong. And I don't think government's bad, and I don't want to ground government in a bathtub. I mean, I can, I can drift off into anarchy. I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat of a libertarian, and if I'm not careful, I'll catch myself saying, you know, you drive on what side of the road you want to drive on, and I'll drive on what side, but I, I accept that. In a lawful and orderly society, government plays a legitimately functioning role. I don't deny that. So if government's going to play a role, let's make it as good as it can be. So is it better having people with other jobs leaving that job to go spend a little bit of time in Columbia? Well, they're paid for a little bit of time. They actually spend a lot more time than you would imagine trying to do the best they can. Or are we better paying somebody a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and finding a better quality of candidates and a bigger pool of quality candidates, and out of that comes a more competent government. I mean, I think that there's a little beauty in both of those of those answers, and I understand what um what the lady is saying when we'd get a better government if we paid them more money. I don't know. I mean, I don't have any, any idea. Here's what I do know, Josh. I know that competency endures. Whether you're running a business, running a church, hosting a radio show, if you're competent, you're going to do better than if you're not. Now, now being highly skilled, being highly motivated, being really, really smart. I mean, some of those are talents. You can be competent. I mean, I made a pledge to Reb when they asked me to do this radio show. I'll be here every day, and I'll be here on time. That's competence. I mean, I, I don't know that we're good at it. I mean, I don't know how smart we are. I don't know how, um, how much we talk about things you're genuinely interested in or curious about. I mean, I'd like to believe the rating show and our listenership shows that we've, I don't want to say nailed it, but we've done a better than, than average job of uh, kind of engaging our listeners where they are. And, um, and I, I've told Rev this before, so I mean, I let some of the secret out of the bag. I wish this show were in other markets. I think we're worthy of an audience in other markets. Um, it's just as hard to do this show in this market as it would be to do it in, in four or five separate markets. I mean, obviously, we'd lose some of the local flavor. I mean, it would have to be a little different if we were to to go down that road. But of course, you know, we've explored or considered what our what our options are are there. But the the only thing I've ever tried to do is inspire debate. 
force you to think about things that affect your life, whether you believe they do or not. And, and I enjoy that. I mean, it, it's therapeutic for me. It's cathartic for me. It's, it's helpful for me. Um, most of the political situations in America today don't have an A or B answer. The, the only fundamental that, that I hold and, and I'll not waver from is you can't spend money you don't have but for so long. What should the average age, what, excuse me, what should the eligibility age of a Social Security benefit be for Josh's generation? I've got one answer. You know what the answer is? I don't know. Let's talk about it. Let's debate it. Let's have a committee that seriously considers. Let's have a debate of competent people who understand the problem and are working on a better solution. That's what we don't have in government, and that's why I'm so concerned about where we are because J.P. Morgan is interested in J.P. Morgan as they should be. Goldman Sachs is interested in Goldman Sachs. BlackRock is interested in BlackRock. None of those companies operate on the premise of patriotism. I mean, it's their bottom line. And government has morphed into something that can help aid or cause damage to their bottom line. So when you're BlackRock, when you're running BlackRock, and you hire two lobbyists to get X done in the name of government influence, why not hire four? I mean, if it advantages your bottom line, then why not do it twice as much as you did it? But for every policy that advantages BlackRock, guess what, Rev? Somebody is disadvantaged. I mean, it's a zero-sum game. You know, you, you take from and you give to. I mean, that's what government, in essence, does. I remember, um, as lieutenant governor, banging the gavel. And one moment, I don't know, early in my time, I banged the gavel and I said, damn, somebody just won and somebody just lost. And there's a lobby full of people out there happy, or half a lobby, and there's half a lobby full of people out there that aren't very, aren't very happy. And, and that's why I believe in, in limited government. I think a government that has the ability to do less is, is a government that requires us to do more. That's probably a better way to say it. A government that is limited calls us, causes us to not depend on government to do certain things. And I think fundamentally that's probably why I'm a conservative, why I'm a kind of a libertarian leaning um, conservative, but, but I've never, ever, I don't think profess to have all the answers. I got to ask the questions and I enjoy the conversation and I enjoy the debate, but I don't, I don't have all the answers to these questions. If somebody said, Ken, by, by Monday, do you think you can submit the 10 most important questions for government to answer? I think I could get eight of them. I mean, I'm sure I wouldn't nail the landing. I'm sure I wouldn't be perfect, but but I do believe I'm aware enough and read enough and studied enough and understand enough and to some degree smart enough to say, yeah, give me till Monday and, I, and I'll give you 10 questions. You may throw two in the trash, but I think the other eight would stand the, the scrutiny of vetting. I mean, I think they would be legitimate concerns that people should have about what government's doing and where it's going. But but that goes back, Josh, to my my, my father demanded competency of us. My father couldn't make us smarter. He couldn't make us taller, couldn't make us bigger, couldn't make us wider, couldn't make us blacker, couldn't make us redder, couldn't make us, you know, tall. You see where I'm headed. But, but competence is something you can demand of yourself. I'm going to be the best I can. Isn't that kind of what we started the show with this morning with Nick Saban? I mean, what is the legacy of Nick Saban? Do we know that Saban's IQ is off the chart? No, we don't know that. Do we know that his personality is so charming when he goes into a parent's home of a recruit 
that nobody stands at you. We don't know that. The one thing we do know, he's unbelievably competent. Whatever he's capable of, he does. Am I right? I mean, I doubt very seriously Nick Saban goes to bed at night, many nights saying, wow, didn't give it all I had today. Wasn't quite as competent as I could be today. Now, that gets on some people's nerves. I mean, it, it, it can become very obsessive, and it can become very overbearing. And, and we all know people like that, don't we, Rev? Um, but, but, <laughs> no, but, no comment. But, but I, I just think government lacks competency. And I think it lacks competency because it doesn't demand competency. The private sector demands competency. You either are good at it or you lose. You run a business. You suck at running a business. You know what? You don't suck at running a business long. I mean, if you, if you start a business and you suck at running a business, guess what? The market figures you out. You don't run that business long. And I think government has morphed into something that almost rewards incompetence. All right, well, not, what is the goal? I mean, you have to ask yourself what drives you. And we know, obviously, if you start a business, you know, success and revenue and money and everything else. But in government, you know, what, what drives you to well, succeed, I, to be, to, to, to take the extra effort, to, to you know, go the extra mile? Well, I mean, for me, it was to pay respect to the values that were embedded in my DNA. I mean, I couldn't go to Columbia and not do the best I and, knew and, how. And you can affect change. Sure you can. I mean, you can absolutely affect change. Um, I mean, I, I, I think altruism is overrated. I mean, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. All politicians have larger egos than most. I mean, they just do. How many of you are comfortable standing in front of 2,000 people saying, if all of you do what I'll say, your lives will be fundamentally better? I mean, some, but not most. I mean, most said, nah, you do that. I mean, as my brother famously said, you go save the world, I'm building truck beds. You know, you, you go save the world. You believe that that's what you're called and led. You go save the world. I'm going to stay right here and build <laughs> and build truck beds. Um, but that's an interesting question. What motivates you to be good at government? I mean, if you're running an agency and you're paid, I mean, if you're making a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year into the DOJ, I mean, obviously that there's an accountability that, that must be pl in place. But elected officials are not held accountable by government agencies. It's the voter. I mean, it's the voter. So right. what, what about someone who gets elected to go to Washington causes them to do their dead level best to try to really go to work every day and make America a better place. And what causes some to go there and say, wow, look at me, look at what I've done. Look at what I could be and could do if I don't make the fatal mistake of you ready? Putting the people first. <laughs> take, take, you, get, you get there and say, uh, how do I get in on that Nancy Pelosi uh, stock picking plan? Do, do I want to be patriotic guy on main street? Or chief lobbyist for Goldman Sachs. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What wins that debate? Money's the answer. <laughs> now what's the question? Right. Back in a few. I'll agree with that. I mean, I think when you talk all-time greatest drivers, I mean, obviously you got Richard Petty won 200 races, and I hear this argument about, yeah, but he won them in this period and that period. And he won them when there weren't manufacturers backing teams. And, you know, if Bobby Allison had had the manufacturing backing that Kale Yard, excuse me, that Richard Petty had had, I ah, won 200 races. Um, he probably had some distinct advantages. Good for Richard Petty. Um, Dale Earnhardt Sr. is probably, without question, one of the five greatest NASCAR drivers ever. Jeff Gordon, Jimmy Johnson would have to be considered. I think Johnson won seven championships. Um, I'd rather say greatest of an era, greatest of a generation. I think it's hard. I mean, it's fun because there is no right answer. 
But I think it's a lot easier to say, who was the greatest quarterback of this era? Who was the greatest driver of that era? I think when you try to compare Kill Yarber's race career to Jimmy Johnson's, I, I just think you're, you're – I mean, obviously, it's great to drink a beer, sit around a fire, and and, and debate. I mean, I, I love that. I love that better. Than, I love the questions that don't have exact answers. Two plus two bores me. I mean, it really and truly does. Um, I'd much rather have these questions that are c- kind of in, in the hypothetical. I, there, there is no doubt in my mind that Kel Yarborough was one of the five greatest NASCAR drivers of his generation. Was he one of the five greatest ever? I'm from Pamplico. He's from Sardis and Timmonsville. Yes, he's one of the five <laughs> greatest ever in my mind. Now, now, you could argue Jimmy Johnson, Jeff Gordon, Dale Earnhardt, Richard Petty, David Pearson would be someone whose name uh, would come up. A.J. Foyt dabbled in NASCAR, was more known as a as an IndyCar racer. But um, but I think it's a lot. It's not as much fun, but I think it's a better debate when you say, who is the best driver of this era? Who is the best quarterback of that era? I mean, how do you compare Tom Brady to Y.A. Tittle or Johnny Unitas to uh, Mahomes? it's kind of unfair to both to even go down. So how do you compare Kale Yarborough to Jimmy Johnson? It, I mean, it's fun, and you drink a lot of beer, and you burn a lot of wood, but at the end of the night, <laughs> who knows? That's kind of an interesting. I mean, it, there's no doubt that we've got to address that in some in some way, shape, or form. And it's hard to believe that that people allow that to happen. You're talking about competence. We're talking about competency or not in government a second ago. There's no way. I mean, you can be liberal, conservative, want to spend a lot, don't want to spend any, believe the you know the the Mason Dixon, whatever, whatever you choose to believe. There is no way a competent person could defend the situation on our southern border, but the most powerful government on the planet is allowing that cluster you-know-what to continue to exist day after day. That just really confirms the the, the notion that I have. These are very self-serving people. Some are probably competent. Some are not competent. Give give the opportunity to do the right thing or the easy thing. Then more times they're not going to do the easy thing. Your show needs to be more than just a talk show. It's time for us to mobilize people and take this country back in 2024. I mean, we know what the government is doing is wrong. It takes a supermajority to change this country. And these executive orders that the Republicans and Democrats use is a simple majority. Simple majority votes the president in. You know, I've often said in the um, Smokey the Bear ads, when they put all that pressure on Smokey, and they say only you can prevent forest fires. I gotta believe somewhere in his cave, Smokey said, "I don't wanna, I don't wanna be the only one <laughs> that can stop forest fires. I want a lot of other people to be able to help. I don't wanna be the only one that can do that. I enjoy being a radio show host. I don't know if I want to be, uh, you know, a mobilizing of the citizenry, but but we're kind of mobilizing ourselves. I mean, there seems to be. We talked a lot this week about the um." The chaos around Trump 
and the fact he's not being punished at the polls. Now, we'll find out how accurate the polls are in due time. But my theory about January 6th and the 2020 election brings about too much chaos. People are tired of that. They don't want to go down that road anymore. Kind of like the guy's policies. I do believe they're picking on him. I believe they're uh, treating me a little bit, a lot different than they have others. But I wish he'd stop talking about those controversial issues. Well, it seems to me that as part of the mobilization, people are not running from the chaos. I mean, they're, they're in, in, in a weird way, Josh, they're embracing the chaos. I mean, if, if you're trying to paint Trump as a chaos candidate and Trump becomes more likely to win the presidency, isn't that indirectly saying, I'm not bothered by the chaos? I would think so, yeah. And and do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Is there another whiner? That's the last one. Okay, that's the last one. Then I think you got wrap-up music <laughs> to play, Josh. You've been listening to the Wake Up Carolina Whiner Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. You got something you want to whine about? Call anytime, 803-720-5260. It's the official and the original Wake Up Carolina Whiner Line. I'm going to tell you, at times I question whether I'm a good soul or not. I've confirmed that I probably am. I mean, I got flaws, don't get me wrong, but I think internally somewhere down in there, there's some goodness. You know how I know that? Because when Josh came in this morning, I knew he's probably still a bit under the weather. I mean, he's back in in, in in good standing, but he's probably not feeling as well as he normally as he normally does. Something told me to mess with Josh today and make him talk more than he normally does, <laughs> make him participate more, uh, make this show. So, so that impulse, I mean, that, to be honest with you, I mean, that's the, the little devil on the right side oh. of the brain, right? I mean, the, the, I said Josh probably doesn't feel real good. I'm going to ask him a million questions. And put him on the spot. <laughs> and just put uh, time after time. <laughs> now, why so would you do that? That's why, what I'm asking. Why would you Why would like that, that even cross my mind? I mean, most normal people would say, hey, I, I just need I've to let him. I've never said I'm normal. Right? I've never, ever said. And I think that's my point. It's like they would have said, hey, you know, go easy on Josh. Let him stay in there. Make sure he gets along with his recovery and feeling better before but that we goes, demand but so much. But that's how I know there is some goodness in here because <laughs> I've not done it. But you and, had a debate with yourself. But I, uh, Yeah, I mean, I was tempted. <laughs> I was tempted bad this morning when, when he came in and sat down. And I could tell he didn't feel 100%. I said, Josh doesn't feel real good today. How many times can I get him to chime in and, and participate? <laughs> and that's evil. That's wicked. I tell you. But, but something inside of me said, I think it's my mom. My mom said, stop that. I mean, stop thinking that way. That's crazy. You can't pick on Josh today. Josh doesn't feel good. He'll be back in the groove Monday. And jo- J- Monday's show will be a Josh special. Oh. Fauci and the vaccine. We're going to revisit the pandemic. We're going to look at what Fauci said then and what he says now, what his actions were then and what they were based on now. Because he's basically said, remember the scene in Springsteen on Broadway? I made it all up. I mean, you look at a guy who became wildly and insanely successful writing and singing about things he knows nothing about. Fauci's made it all up. And this government made so many consequential decisions based on the stuff he was saying. That should be criminal. <laughs> it should be. If you or I did that and weren't affiliated or associated, with, if we got that many things wrong officially, and we went to the government agencies that hold us responsible. Say, I mean, we were just wrong. We didn't intend. I mean, I understand the fog of war. Sure, I mean, it sure. was a weird time, and we all we've all agreed there. that with that. Yeah, but there's some intentionality there, or something that is really, really dark. Bingo. How much control can I have over a mass of people? I mean, that that's a powerful and intoxicating. He got drunk with that power. Bingo. He was always drunk with power. 
He just never had a chance to exert that sort of power. But when he was given the chance, he showed you every inch, all five feet five, of that Napoleon complex. I'm trying to think. Is there a Springsteen lyric that would apply here? Yeah, I think you're you're thinking the right one. <laughs> we, may, we may play a little Badlands on the other side. Is there a phone? I mean, is there a call? Yeah. Let's go there. Uh, David in the PD. Hi, you're on. Yeah, welcome back, Josh, in the Mission Control booth. I always remember, Father, forgive them. Uh, Ken, uh, Packers, Cowboys, this weekend, do you remember the frozen tundra? Back I in do. The day? I do. Yes, sir. Now, can we get Dave Baker to do his best NFL films voice, John Facenda, back in the day? I don't know if I have one of those. I don't I just know have my voice. That, the frozen tundra. Uh, I was thinking about that game. You had uh, Tom Landry versus Vince Lombardi. There was a day where Tom Landry was the defensive coordinator, uh, and Vince Lombardi was the offensive coordinator for the New York Giants back in 1958. And I remember the names Leroy Jordan, Jethro Pugh, uh, Dandy Don, Bullet Bob. This back in the days, I think Dan Reeves was the lone Gamecock on that Cowboys team. And this weekend, we're going to have four Gamecocks playing for the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, did you know that, Ken? I knew there was one or two, but I didn't know there were four. I was a Redskins there fan growing four. up. And if you're a Redskin, you couldn't pull for the Cowboys. It was forbidden. Well, see, that's see, I'm a Cowboys fan. That, that means that we're not a monolith. So I'm just letting you know, but you got Gilmore, uh, Rico Dowdle, uh, Jalen Brooks, and uh, what, what's that quarterback back in the day that intercepted against uh, Georgia? His name is Israel, his first name. Yeah, I can't do the last name. He had two picks against Georgia the I, year we yeah, upset him. I, 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 can't, I can't either, but I, I was thinking about this, man. You talking about uh, the Biden economy and the Fauci virus, and it just brings me back to a song by Conway Twitty. I'm not going to try to sing on the radio, but he had a song called It's Only Make-Believe. And then I'm thinking about some of these people's view on the Constitution. I always remember this. It is an improv theater. In other words, it's only make-believe. As long as we can make money from this, uh, this, that makes it real. But uh, tell you what, have a good time with your steak. And and you said you had to batter them down first. No, I, I got them pre-battered. I got them pre-battered. Pre-battered. Yeah. Oh, you don't have to do it pre-battered. <laughs> I got okay. friend. I got friends in restaurant places. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. Yeah, I don't Thank have any you. friends in high places. I got friends in restaurant places <laughs> that advise me on the best way to do this or the best way um, to do that. Now, I can't do the Brent Musburger voice. Red probably could, but I can. I mean, I can hear it as clearly as anything right now. When the NFL would start, and this is back in the Irv Cross. Phyllis George days when Brent Musburger, I mean, I, I'd wait with bated breath. We'd get home from church, we'd eat, I'd sit down, and it's like a dream about to come true. And Brent Musburger would say, you are looking live at RFK Stadium. And in about 30 minutes, this is one of the 30-minute pregame show, before they had the six-hour pregame show, and he'd say, well, the Dallas Cowboys are playing visit or, or visiting the Washington Reds. And, Bo, I mean, it was like, if Jesus is coming back, now would be about the most appropriate time. Um, what Musburger would say. I mean, that, as a kid, I mean, I'm telling you, I tell my kids this, and they don't understand it. I mean, they get what they want when they want. I didn't. I mean, I, I was not deprived by any stretch. 
but but you had to wait on your favorite song. You had to wait on that one game a week. I mean, now we just get inundated with amenities and luxuries and choices. And I think it was so much better back then. The song was so much better, Josh, when I had to wait two days to hear it. The ball game was so much better when I began on Wednesday thinking about, man, I can't wait to hear Brenton Musburger say, you are looking live at RFK Stadium. And knowing the Cowboys and Redskins were about to play, and that was one thing my dad cut me slack on. I mean, at Monday night football, when I was young, went to bed early, my dad would argue with my, ah, let him stay up a little bit longer. I mean, he likes this. He, he really likes this. Let him stay up. And I'm like, who is that? I mean, who is that, um, who is that dictator <laughs> telling me that I can stay up a few moments longer? We'll be back in a few. Still got some trivia around the corner. What? <laughs> Brings back memories, man. You are looking live at Cowboys Stadium. I mean, it was the Cowboys and Redskins. And and I, I don't know why we were fed the Redskins. I mean, we the Falcons were here, but we were still, I mean, that's why you got so many generational Redskins fans my age uh, over here because we just, you know, that's who the team was. And, and, and really and truly, the majority of my friends, and I'm talking about my generation, I mean, some have adopted the Panthers, and they buy tickets and PS, all, all that. Not a lot, but but it's still Cowboys and Redskins. I'll eat lunch today with, with a bunch of guys my age, and half will be Cowboys and half will be will be Redskins, and they'll talk about how Daniel Snyder's ruined the Redskins, and you can't tell Jerry Jones a damn thing, and you know it'll be it'll be a debate about Redskins and Cowboys, and all the Redskins fans will pull with the Packers. Sunday afternoon, and that's probably, I don't want, I mean, obviously it's not the two best teams in pro football, but it may be the two biggest brands in college football, but the Packers have a national audience or a national following. The The Cowboys, I'll tell you how I know this. I was watching the Packers play ah, the Jacksonville Jaguars. I'm making up a team, and the, the Packers scored a touchdown, and it sounded like Lambeau. And then I watched <laughs> the Cowboys play the Minnesota Vikings. And the Cowboys scored a touchdown, and it sounds like a, the home team yeah. scored a touchdown. It's um, it's a little bit like, uh, I'm trying to think of his name, the basketball coach at South Carolina after Fig Newton. Steve Newton, not Fig Newton. We <laughs> called him Fig. His name was Steve Newton. But they, Darren Horn. Darren Horn was was okay. I mean, he, he was not, I mean, he came in as kind of a hotshot young guy, smart guy. It was not working out. But I think they may have given him another year, except Kentucky came to town and Gamecock fans were outnumbered five to one. <laughs> I mean, it was like a Kentucky home game. Now, I find out eventually that the Kentucky basketball faithful couldn't buy a ticket at Rupp. I mean, they're, they're sold out in season. A little bit like the Packers and, and the Cowboys. They couldn't find tickets, so Lexington and Columbia aren't that far apart. They fly or drive down to Columbia, and they bought up all the tickets. And I just got to believe that somebody at USC said, oh, no, no, we're getting rid of him now. We're not going to play in our expensive and new uh, basketball arena and be the visiting team. We're just not going to do that. So, Darren Horn, no more coaching for you. Um, And they did it that moment. It's time for some trivia, right? We're we're talking about college football coaching. We've talked a lot about Nick Saban today. Here's my question. You ready? Who? Give me a coach that has won more football games in college than Nick Saban. I think Nick Saban is about um, fifth on the list, somewhere there about 
but give me a coach that has won more football games than Nick Saban has. There, I think there's four or five. I don't need but one. Can we do that? Yeah. Correct answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of takes Mondays to make Fridays T-shirts. Uh, five coaches. I'm looking now. Five college football coaches have won more games than Nick Saban. I need one. 843-661-0937 is our number. Hello, you're on the air. What's your guess? Bobby Bowden. Bobby Bowden, 346 wins, number two all time. Who is this? Where are you calling from? This is Michael Cutler from Darlington. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate you listening. Appreciate hey, you calling. Um, we'll get you with Josh, and he'll get all your information. Um, you want a six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of takes Mondays to make Fridays. I've seen some of those T-shirts around town. And it's pretty cool. On the back, it says takes Mondays to make Fridays on the front. And I think on the sleeve, got the big Pepsi logo. Yep. Thanks to Pepsi. Um, as good a sponsor and partner as you could possibly ask for. Um, been a one Celsius morning this morning. I'm not going to the gym today. Don't need that second Celsius. I, I'm proud of myself for not being as aggravating to Josh as I could have been. I've let him rest today. He'll have a lot to say Monday. The about fact the that vaccine. you thought about that and considered it, it is, it is no, no question about it. Joe Paterno, his career ended, you know, um, and, and not the way he would wish it end. Uh, but Joe Paterno won 409 games. Bobby Bowden won 346 games. Bear Bryant at Alabama won 323 games. He didn't win them all at Alabama. He won a lot at Alabama. Pop Warner won 318 games. Amos Alonzo Stagg, they say. I don't think it was such a person. He won 314 games. And Nick Saban, 292 games. It's kind of interesting to me. Mac Brown is right behind Nick Saban, 276 wins. And then you've got Tom Osborne, Lou Holtz, Frank Beamer. Shane Beamer's father is number 11 all-time wins. Uh, Steve Spurrier is number 14, 228 all-time wins. Clemson fans remember Woody Hayes. Took a swing at one of your players in the Gator Bowl back in the day. Enjoy your weekend. Uh, We'll talk again Monday.